0: Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Ooh, hope you're doing well. So we had a good show, a very interesting show tonight, covered a lot of ground. First guy was questioning uh, Aristotle's logic and the relationship between logic, language, and reality, a pretty fertile topic and something important to discuss for reasons that I kind of get into in the conversation. Now, the second is a guy just about to head into med school. And he's interested in spreading peaceful parenting. And he wonders if there's a way to make it go viral, like a pathogen of virtue, which was a very interesting approach. Third guy, a freaking out parenting peaceful father who's concerned that his peaceful parenting techniques might be turning his children into rampant, outright communists. And um, surprising question and a surprising perspective on what happened. The last caller, his first question was basically, uh, he just finished reading the book, The Count of Monte Cristo, and he was wondering, what is the relationship between virtue and vengeance? Revenge. And then we talked about how he was spreading freedom. And uh, yes, if you have an apocalyptic frame of mind, this might be a useful conversation for you to listen to. Please don't forget, FDRURL.com slash Amazon. If you're going to do any shopping this holiday season, you can do it through our affiliate link. Doesn't cost you a penny and uh, throws a few bits of crackers our way. Of course, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help the show out. As always, thank you so much for listening. Let's strap in.
1: All right. Well, up first today is Mark. Mark wrote in and said Aristotle poses that A is A. Aristotle tries to create rules to which the world conforms, but neglects to question what is this world? Or do our descriptions form what we perceive? These questions might seem useless, but rigorous use of language is showing us the limits of its use as shown by the open question. What is it we perceive and what is its relation to language? Do you think that finding some answers to these questions can make our lives better? Is there any practical impact of such examinations in our day-to-day life? That's from Mark.
0: Hello, Mark. Good evening. How are you doing?
2: Hello. Hello. Doing fine. Looking forward for the discussion. I am a big fan of the show, so
0: I am. Um, I'm not sure that I understand the questions, which it means that, uh, or the definitions or the issues. So I wonder if you could step me through it. Don't 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 be afraid to dumb it down quite a bit. Pretend I'm like four years old and asking why I shouldn't uh, hit Johnny and steal his candy. But uh, what is it that you are? Um, these questions around language is it is it like the, the relationship between language and things? in the real world, and the incompleteness of that relationship? I mean, I'm trying to understand what it is that we're going to be talking about tonight.
2: Yes. and uh, Yes. Basically, um, you probably know um, Cretan paradox. Uh, the uh, Cretan says all the Cretans uh, are liars. And now we cannot uh, make uh, the true value of this statement. Right? Uh, do you know uh, this paradox?
0: all Cretans are liars?
2: Yes, and it's Cretan who says that.
0: Right. So if he's, if he's, if he's correct, then he's lying. Therefore, he can't be correct. Uh, and therefore, if, all Cretans can't be. If he's telling the truth, then all Cretans can't be liars. If he's lying, then all Cretans can't be liars. So I don't know that it's a paradox. It's just something which can't ever be parsed out as true. Uh,
2: or false. Because if it's false, then it's true.
0: Right, but since, since something can't be both false and true at the same time, it's something that you just kind of shrug your shoulders and walk away from, because <laughs> what would that have to do with philosophy, fundamentally?
2: Yes, in, in this case, uh, we would expect that, but uh, uh, with, uh, uh, in Gettel's case, uh, we were tra- specifically trying to build a uh, uh, theory that has some strength, and uh, we arrived at uh, even in this specifically uh, artificially constructed theory, uh, there are statements which are, uh, which are true, but unprovable.
0: Well, but I'm sorry, you're just asking me sort of real world philosophical issues. like if someone came up to me and said, Steph, I'm al- I always lie, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, that's never going to happen, right? People are not going to, you know, they may do it implicitly, like, hi, I'm running for office, yeah. but they're not going to do it. They come out and say, Steph, everything I say is a lie. What do you think of that? I'd be like, I don't know, I, I'd rather chat with people who aren't going to immediately propose an incomprehensible paradox to me and call me fussy, you know? Um, but uh, I just, in, in the real world of philosophy, since that's your sort of question of real world, why? What would it matter to try and unravel such a thing? You know, we've got parenting to improve. We've got wars to end. We've got famines to dismantle. We have national debts to uh, reverse. We have a huge amount of things to do in the world. I don't know why I'd muck about in a corner with somebody throwing curveball boomerang bladed troll questions at me like why would I bother with someone like that I mean I'm I'm open to the answer I'm just not like I'm I'm thinking in the real world like I'm at a party and someone says oh I'd really like to talk about peaceful parenting and someone else says I'm a liar all the time I just I know who I would speak with and I just don't know why I'd waste my time with these cretins right (laughs) Uh,
2: yeah yeah that's true but uh, uh, you so it, it doesn't bother you at all that, um, that it's possible to construct such a paradox in language, uh, because to me it, it shows, uh, uh, shows the limit of uh, knowledge based on language.
0: Not, not if you don't interact with people like that, it doesn't, right? I mean, if someone, if someone wants to create a paradox like, I'm a liar all the time, I'm like, I, why would I bother? Like, why would, why would I want to spend my time trying to unravel something like that? Either they're not a liar, but they're lying to me, in which case they are sometimes a liar. But to say that I'm always lying or everything I say is a lie, I mean, it's not possible, right? Because he's using words that are accurate to communicate, That he's a liar, right? If he can communicate the idea to me that he's lying, then he's using true, valid and accurate words to describe his condition or his process as as a human being. So he's at least telling the truth insofar as he's using truthful words to describe his liar, his lying habits or process or whatever. In which case, he's not a liar. Like, if he came up and said something completely, Right, then, then I'd be like, okay, well, I guess maybe he's lying, maybe he's telling the truth, or maybe he's just having a seizure. But the moment he comes up and forms a comprehensible sentence to me designed to communicate a particular proposition or, or truth statement, then he's already telling the truth insofar as he's picking the right words to communicate his idea. And I just, yeah, why would I want to get him? That's, that's somebody who's like, That's a real, that's a pathological personality disorder. Like compulsive lying is um, very, very disturbed personality structure. And I don't think that I would... You know, like I'm, I'm not going to try and play catch with someone who's trapped inside an iron lung, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to invite someone in a wheelchair to do cartwheels. And this is no disrespect to physical disabilities, which have nothing to do with intellectual or moral disabilities. But if somebody comes up and obviously has a twisted and pathological personality structure, why would I grace them with time, attention and reasonable philosophy? It wouldn't make wouldn't make any sense at all. It'd be like someone sitting down and saying, I'd like to play chess with you, but whether I win or lose, I'm going to bite you. It's like, okay, so the only way to win this game <laughs> is not to play, troll, right? So I just, maybe people could construct that kind of thing, but why on earth would I want to have anything to do with someone like that when there's so much good that can be done in philosophy? Uh,
2: yeah, yes, you bring up valid point, but uh, still... So you would say that uh, reality does not contain uh, paradoxes?
0: Well, define what you mean by paradox and define what you mean by reality. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not sure what we're talking about. I mean, I know what I would talk about with those terms, but if you're not talking about the same thing, we're liable to be just two ships that pass in the night.
2: Okay, so... Um, and yes, so... Uh, we built, uh, uh, or mathematicians have built, uh, uh, Principia Mathematica, to uh, to be able to answer all the questions in in the theory. And uh, Gedel came up and said that all the all the systems that have uh, that have this kind of strength that where you can express all these statements. Uh, will contain paradox. And
0: to me, that... Uh, no, but wait, sorry, we're trying to define either reality or paradox. Saying something okay. contains paradox is like, what is a floobie? Well, a guy said something contains flubies. Oh, well, that doesn't oh, help okay. you know so, so, what a floobie is. So what do you mean by paradox?
2: Yeah, I mean something uh, where you cannot say if it's true or false, or you you cannot uh, cannot tell... Yeah, you cannot exactly tell what it is. Yeah, I would, I would describe paradox. I don't, I don't
0: think that's exactly what a paradox is. Okay. So I mean, then that's like, I mean, if, if I say I had a dream about an elephant last night, you can't tell whether that's true or false. You can't prove it or disprove it, and you never will be able to. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that what I'm posing is a paradox. I'm simply posing a question for which there's no possible way to validate it and no possible null hypothesis, no way of proving or disproving the statement that is um, not a paradox. That's just something that can't be established in in any objective way.
2: So, uh, s- could could you then tell me <laughs> what do you
0: consider? Paradox? Well, here's here's another example. Like if I say I like jazz, right, and and I go to jazz concerts and I buy Chick Korea and <laughs> like I buy jazz albums. And uh, I know a lot about jazz, and and maybe I play some trumpet or something, right? And so I say, I like jazz, and you know that I've been to a bunch of jazz concerts, have all these jazz albums and so on, right? Well, that could be a true statement. But let's say that for some reason I'm just pretending to like jazz my whole life long, like I really, really hate it. It sounds like, uh, you know, random scritchy-scratchy canoodling of people practicing their instruments in a giant cacophony of anti-musicality. You may... Try and figure out where I stand on jazz based on on that. But maybe I'm just faking it. Maybe I said to my dying father, I'm going to pretend to like jazz my whole life. And uh, I don't actually like jazz. So I can say I like jazz, and there could be lots of physical evidence to support it. Is that a provable statement? I don't know. Maybe what you could do is hook me up to some sort of MRI or something and see if the happy centers in my brain light up when I hear jazz. But um, there's a subjective statement of preference for which there may be empirical evidence. In my behavior, there may be some medical evidence. You could find a way to glean it. And you could probably prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But I could still be lying. Maybe I found a way to fake the MRI. <laughs> I don't know what I mean. Like so, so these are things which you can't ever prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. But um, I would not say that that is a paradox. A paradox is an unresolvable contradiction somehow in the nature of reality. Like a paradox would be something like... Um, I mean, this is not a perfect example, but something like this. Um, can, can God li- can God make a stone that's too heavy for God to lift? Now, if God can create a stone that is too heavy for God to lift, then God is not all-powerful because God can't lift the stone which he created. If it is impossible for God to create a stone too heavy for him to lift, then God is not all-powerful <laughs> because uh, he's barred from making a stone too heavy for him to lift. That would be sort of a contradiction or a paradox. Uh, that would be in the nature of uh, the concept of a deity. But since, I, since deities don't exist in reality, that is not a contradiction or a paradox within reality.
2: And isn't that uh, previous example resolved that uh, it, since God is uh, all-powerful, he can decide at one point that he will lose his, his all-powerfulness? And he will create that stone? At, at that point where he creates the stone, he's not a God anymore?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then that puts God in a sequence of time that has him subject to time. From uh, okay. Wiki, a paradox is a statement that apparently contradicts itself, and yet might be true or wrong at the same time. Uh, some logical paradoxes are known to be invalid arguments, but are still valuable in promoting critical uh, thinking. Uh, some paradoxes have revealed errors in definitions assumed to be rigorous, and of course, axioms of mathematics and logic to be re-examined. One example is Russell's paradox, I think that's named after the Terrier, which questions whether, quote, a list of all lists that do not contain themselves would include itself, and showed that attempts to found set theory on the identification of sets with properties or predicates were flawed. Others, such as Curry's paradox, why is it tasty even though it burns my white throat, are not yet resolved. And um, examples outside logic include the ship of Theseus from philosophy, questioning whether a ship repaired over time by replacing each of its wooden parts would remain the same ship. We talked about this in the show recently, how um, every seven years, pretty much approximately every single cell in your body has been replaced. They don't all wait for the seven years and then shimmer in and out like you're on a teleporter. But after about seven years, there are no cells remaining from your body from seven years ago. They cycle in and out. Are you the same person? Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, of course, right? But are you composed of the same matter? Uh, No. Uh, So um, it's the old thing that if if somebody could, at an atomic level, reproduce the the painting uh, Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa painting, or the Nat King Cole song, for that matter, then um, if you could, at an atomic level, completely recreate the Mona Lisa and destroy the original, would you still have the Mona Lisa? I mean, they're sort of interesting questions. Uh, I actually... um, some of these to my daughter uh, at dinner you know we did we did puddle we did puddle pond lake puddle pond lake these are not paradoxes but this is example of, of the fuzzy edges of language so um, we did some puddle jumping earlier today and I said okay so the puddle we jumped in was that a, the thing we jumped in right that was that a puddle she said yes I said okay well uh, a pond that we visited uh, last week Is that a pond? Right. I didn't say a pond, but where we went, she said yes. And I said, okay. Well, this big lake that we once went boating on is is that at least? Yeah, it's a lake, right? So puddle, pond, lake. Now, um, so I put my sort of two fingers on the table. I said, okay. Let's say the puddle is this big and the pond is this big, right? It's twice the size, right? Puddle pond. She says, okay, puddle pond, right? And then I just made my fingers a little bigger. Is it still a puddle? Is it a puddle? Is it a puddle? Is it a puddle, right? And it's like it's almost the same size as a pond. Is it a puddle or a pond? Well, it's mostly pond. And I said, could it be a small pond? Or a large puddle, right? And, and these are sort of definitional questions that are kind of fun to think about, but there's no particular answer A. I mean, you, you, there's one atom more and it boom transmogrifies from a puddle to a pond or a pond to a lake. Oh, it's a shallow uh, lake. Uh, it's a shallow pond, therefore it's kind of like a puddle. Or it's a deep uh, pond, therefore it's kind of like a lake. I mean, so... But yet, nonetheless, most times when people say we're going to the lake, if you said if I picked you up and said, "Hey, man, we're going to the lake," and then I drive you to a puddle, you'd be like, uh, "Dude, <laughs> what are you? doing? It's a puddle!" Right? So, so at the fuzzy edges of these definitions, this is um, a challenge. Nobody knows exactly what is a tall person. Well, a tall person in Africa, where people are very tall, outside of pygmies, on <laughs> well, a pygmy in South America, but. A tall person in Africa is a tall person. A tall person in China may be a short person in Africa. You know, we use the word tree to refer just, I mean, outside of like logic trees or or recursive trees in, in coding. Um, we use the word tree to refer to a sapling. We got sapling, but we say, oh, it's a baby tree. Uh, we refer to it a, a tree that is a, a deciduous tree or an evergreen tree. They're both still trees. Um, a, a tree that's been dead for uh, a year is still a dead. It's a dead tree, right? Still, we use the word tree. A tree in summer with lots of leaves, other tree in winter has no leaves. They're both still trees. And there are times when like a, a shrub is really tall. Is it a tree or not? I don't know. That That half shrub, half tree thing over there is probably what we'd say. And of course, we use the word tree to refer to lots of different trees, even though there's no identical tree in the world. Like there's no tree that is exactly the same as another tree in any way, shape, I'm mean, not even close, right? In all different branches and different root systems and so on. We say tree and generally we mean the part that is above the ground. Although a tree, of course, is as much below the ground as it is above the ground. But we don't say the top half of the tree, we just say tree. And then of course, we'd say, well, of course, there are roots and the tree goes as much underground as it does up into the air. But we don't say, you know, that's the top half of a tree. When we say, oh, there's a house, we don't say, well, you know, outside of Florida and places or California up in Canada, have basements, right? So you, say, you don't say, well, that's the top three quarters of a house. You know, we just say, well, that's a house, right? So you can go slowly crazy <laughs> thinking about all the ways in which language is useful and ridiculously imprecise, right? Does tree capture everything about every tree? Of course not. There's the inside of the tree, right? There are things living inside the tree. There are termites, there are ants, there are, you know, animals who've burrowed into the roots and are currently feasting on them or whatever, right? So, um, and the tree blurs into, there's no particular point at which this atom is a tree, and now this atom is the air, or this atom is the tree, and now this atom is the earth. There's an an overlap, like two fingers going together, right? Because there's no particular demarcation. Nonetheless, with all of this caveats in place with regards to language, nonetheless, a three-year-old knows what a tree is. And that's, you know, the great challenge where you just have to accept when you really start to think about language, it is ridiculously imprecise and confusing and chaotic. Yet nonetheless, it is incredibly valuable and useful. And it is incredibly accurate in that if I say we're going to the lake, you don't expect me to drive you to a mall or to a tree or to a puddle or to a lake of fire or to a volcano or whatever it is, right? So Language, when you get into thinking about it, can kind of drive you crazy with its imprecision and the great challenge, which philosophers have been working on. You know, this is all the way back to the, the, the problem of concepts that Aristotle and Plato wrestled over. And Aristotle said, well, we accumulate concepts based upon the essences, the similarities of the things that we regard in our life. And we build them up over time through exposure to similar things. Whereas Plato said, well, we get concepts or, or language in a sense. The essence of language is because we float above the earth before we're born and we see a perfect tree. And then when we come to earth, we see this vague shadow of the perfect tree. And we know it's a tree because we have a vague memory of the perfect treeness in the world of forms that orbit the earth like Saturn's bits of a moon or something. So when it comes to sort of incompleteness, yeah, every single thing that you say about language, you can get to the fuzzy edges of what it is defining. And you can find stuff to pick apart. Nonetheless, language is incredibly precise and incredibly useful uh, and incredibly accurate in that if you say to your three-year-old, I'm giving you a candy, and then you give them a a piece of bark, (laughs) they will be very, very disappointed. And um, watching language and concept formation in in my daughter, this is the first time I've really had a chance to watch that incredible eruption. It's like watching some ancient city like Atlantis come up out of the uh, ocean to watch concept and language formation occurring in a baby. Uh, it is uh, remarkable how incredibly precise and accurate language is in terms of how um, you communicate it, right? I can't remember what they call, but there are these words. There's a, a word for um, the pretend words that your kids have when they can't say. Like my when my daughter wanted to say spider when she was a baby, she said bidabo, or grape was Bagai. Um and uh, she she had and we knew what she meant. She was just still working out how to operate the giant machinery of, of, of mouth and throat and tongue and teeth in order to get the right word out. And we actually somewhere have a list of like 50 of these that we wrote down that she was working her way through. And I was the same way uh, when I was a, a kid. Uh, when I was very young, uh, there was only one other person in the family who knew what the hell I was saying and had to translate to the adults uh, for me. So at the fuzzy edges of language, we can, all, we can go completely mental, wondering how on earth it can possibly work. But it does, and it works fantastically. And I think that the disassembly of language and the disassembly of potential logical paradoxes is a fine hobby. It is a fine – it's like whittling, you know. It's a fine hobby. Why not? You know, why not sit there and, you know, with your nipple-high suspenders and uh, make little things out of wood? But but it's not a job. It, it's like a, a time waster, and it's fun, you know. And maybe you can learn a few things here and there just as you can with whittling, like, ow, that hurts when you dig your knife in your skin but it's not the job of philosophy to work on that. That is the leisure time of philosophy after the problems have been solved in the world. But I believe that philosophy needs to be out there in the world solving the problems of the initiation of force against children, against citizens, against foreigners. I mean, the initiation of irrationality against people subjugated to various ideologies and nationalisms and racisms and religions and so on. We have enough to do out there in the world to make the world a better place. And if we want to, after a good day out there in the trenches battling uh, evil and sophistry and uh, wrongdoing and uh, delusion and uh, manipulation and propaganda of every kind. If we want to relax and wonder what a tree really is, that's fine. But it has as much relationship to building a house as whittling does. Uh, whittling will never get you a house, but it might be a decent way to relax after a hard day's work. And that's how I view these questions of of paradoxes and the edges and the fuzzy borders and the this and that and the other. Yeah, fine. If you spent your day battling evil and you want to think about all of that kind of stuff, uh, go for it. But it's certainly not the job. You know, if I say, hey, man, I'm going to build you a house and you pay me $200,000 and I come over and I whittle, you'll be like, where's my house? I'm like, this is what I call building a house. And this questioning the fuzzy boundaries of definitions and so on is like whittling when we should be out there building houses. And that's, I think, what society should be paying philosophers to do is not to buck about with definitions and potential paradoxes, but to do something useful in the world. Like if some guy came along and said, hey, man, I'll be your doctor, you know, pay me 100 bucks a month, I'll be your doctor. And um, you then, I don't know, you you got some weird growth on your hand and you, hey, I think I'm turning into a tree. If you got some weird growth in your hand and you go to this doctor, uh, you come to me and I'm supposed to be your doctor and I say, it's really interesting when you think about it, the fuzzy edges of the definitions between health an illness. You know, what's healthy when you're 10 is not always healthy when you're 20 or 50. Somebody who's in good health when they're 70 would not be in good health if they had the same characteristics when they were 15. And I just give you all of these fuzzy definitional things. I think part of you, and hopefully a big loud part of you, would be saying, well, that may be all very interesting, doctor guy, but I've got this weird freaking growth on my hand. Can you help me get burn it off with fire? Get me some holy water. Uh, get me some freeze ray, whatever you need to do. I got to get this growth off my hand. And I'd say, well, you know, what's interesting is that uh, hand uh, is a complicated question when it comes to the definition of halalala. There could be paradoxes in the way that we use our hands or hands use us. I mean, uh, it, it, do we have the hand or does the hand have the body? And, and, uh, right? And you'd be like, growth, hand, burn, kelp, health, medicine. And, and at some point you'd say, you are like a terrible doctor. <laughs> Because, you know, I need you to help me with something. And you're just, like, giving me these weird little definitional things. And that, to me, is the world coming to philosophers, particularly academic philosophers, and saying, we're dying out here. We're dying. Things are going really, really badly. Oh, war, child abuse, murder, rape. Oh, God. Collectivism of every single kind. Delusion, darkness, manipulation, sophistry. The, the, the giant boa constrictor of dead language has got us and is choking the living life out of us. And we're like you know, there are these interesting paradoxes around the logic of a deity. And it's like, oh, growth on hand called evil, burn it with fire. You're the only person who can. And I think it's incredibly, I'm not saying putting you in this category, of think it's incredibly irresponsible and vicious to say, uh, I'm into thinking, I'm into philosophy, and I can't help you with the growth of evil on your hand. I'd much rather talk about whether there really is such a thing as a hand. Okay, that's the end, end of my rant, but that's sort of why I don't care that much about these things.
2: Yeah, of course, I I agree with you uh, about the applications. I just uh, um, had the idea that uh, we can avoid uh, this ambiguity of natural language and, you know, build uh, some artificial language like mathematics uh, without these paradoxes. And it seems that uh, these paradoxes are are somehow inherent to language. That's what... uh, no, Wait, was, do
0: you really feel that this show in particular is suffering from a deficiency of mathematical language? Uh,
2: no. no uh, <laughs> uh,
0: well. Do, do you think if I had more algebra, we'd convince more parents not to hit their children? <laughs> I'm just curious if you, what you feel is missing. And you could be right. Maybe, maybe uh, we need a Khan Academy. Um, but... Uh, um, I think that it's important upon me to try and fire people up with the virtue and with goodness and with consistency and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, as I've said before, I sort of model what I do, obviously, on Socrates, because uh, he was bald, too. <laughs> but um, No, I mean, I model myself uh, on, on Socrates. So, you know, one day I may actually be accused of corrupting the young and yeah, not believing in the gods
2: you of the city. Yeah, but Canada then?
0: Yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, Socrates wasn't out there saying, well, you know, he wasn't scratching in the dirt um, trying to figure out how to get more algebraic equ- equations or mathematical paradoxes. He was talking with the people about how to live a virtuous life. And um, that is, I think, I mean, kind of missing because, you know, philosophy got hoovered up by the giant space-sucking Tatooine-based more of theology for, I don't know, what about 15 or 1700 years depending on how you count it and um, and then it got sucked up into academia and served the state which is where it currently is and um, to me what i'm what i'm doing or what i'm able to do you know with conversations like this which you know i really mark appreciate is there are smart people in the world and governments know that there are smart people in the world and what they do is bribe them with benefits and titles in return for their silence about the evil doings of the rulers. That's what academia is all about. Ooh, are you smart? All right, you seem like a really smart guy. Ooh, are you good at talking? Are you good at thinking? Are you good at reasoning? Do you have the respect of the people? Ooh, well, you can do a lot of damage to the powers that be. Ooh, I got a great idea. Come here, come here, little guy. I got this wonderful thing. I'm gonna pay you like $150,000 a year, and you're only gonna have to work five hours a week. Oh, you know what? Every fifth year, you can just take off and just go do whatever the hell you want. And uh, oh, another thing too, you'll never, ever, ever be able to be fired. And and that, uh, that's got to that's taste good. Plus, you'll have a bunch of undergraduates and graduate students all who want to sick your big, giant philosophy PhD dick so that you can offer them the same goodies that you have. And this is the great temptation that they are offering to people uh, in the world and it is a way of drawing people into the ring of power uh, getting them to suck at the giant welfare teat of academia thus rendering them beyond useless to the average person philosophers should be among the crowd speaking with the people encouraging people to virtue listening to people's concerns philosophy should serve the people and philosophy has been co-opted by academics to serve the rulers and it serves the rulers in two ways number one they're not out there talking to the people trying to encourage people to virtue and strength and courage and nobility. Number one. Number two, they make philosophy look as useless as tits on a bull. They make philosophy look ridiculous and boring and pedantic and abstract and stupid and useless. And it's really, really working well. Like the whole Middle Eastern crisis right now. There's no big red phone in the I'm saying, "Shit, man!" This is bad. We got a moral crisis on our hand. Pick up the red phone. We got to get a philosopher in here. They do this with other things, right? I mean, they do this with, oh, we have a big complicated medical problem. We'd better get a good doctor in here. Get the doctor on, right? With some public health crisis. Get the epidemiologist on, not the epistemideologist on, right? When was the last time that you ever heard the bat signal go out to the clouds with a big Socratic wreath on top saying, philosophers, we need you. Now break out the philosophy. You know, take them out of the cryogenic chambers. You know, we only keep them for the biggest and gravest and most deadly emergencies that the species has ever known. It's so bad. In case of emergency break abstraction right i mean they don't like give the give the philosophers some some oxygen to to breathe you know we've got to get them out retrieve philosopher bring philosophy bring them to life bring the electricity down like frankenstein we got to get the philosophers because we're doomed otherwise nobody ever thinks of that and as far as the smartest people in the world you know there are there are the two top disciplines for intelligence, and I'm just sort of raw IQ processing power, the two top disciplines for intelligence. Number one, physicist. Number two, philosopher. They and, and, and as far as being useful to the world, physicists are kicking philosophers' asses. Where is the philosophical Neil deGrasse Tyson? Where is the philosophical Richard Dawkins? Where is the great poet philosopher who can bridge the gap between academics and the people. I mean, Jesus, where is the philosophical Carl Sagan out there creating media for the public to consume? And there's me, but I'm talking about PhD philosophers who've, you know, it's like you guys are taking millions of dollars of the public's money. How about getting off your ivory tower asses and coming down actually helping the people. <gasps> oh, no, you see, because by sealing them off in these biochambers of academic u- uselessness, we render them very fragile and very delicate, and they don't like to upset people. They don't want anyone to get mad at them because they've been bought out. And when you're bought out, you're taken off the battlefield, you lose all your battle skills, or you fail to develop them in the first place, and you become a fraidy cat. Yeah, and I'm sorry, this is, <laughs> this is where... Philosophy is. Philosophy is absolutely desperately and totally needed by the world as a whole. And where are the academic philosophers out there busting their butts to help people solve the genuine problems that beset the world? The world is dying from a lack of philosophy. The world is dying from a lack of principles. Where the hell are the superheroes in mankind's time of greatest need? Right? These are the end times potentially for the slow and steady but uneven growth of civilization for the past 1,000 or 2,000 years. These are the end times. And where are, you know, there's ancient myths in just about every tribe that there was a great king of the past. There was a great king in the past who fought against the enemies of the kingdom and vanquished the enemies of the kingdom. And there's always the same myth if you look throughout history. The myth is this, that in the time of the kingdom's greatest need that ancient warrior will come back to Earth and come back alive and destroy once more the deadly foes who threaten the life of the kingdom. And this was used in, in Lord of the Rings, right? Aragorn goes and gets the ghost army. This is, this is the standard myth. And there is great power to this myth. It gives people hope that the glories of the future can even remotely match the imagined, often imagined glories of the past. But the real emotional driver mark behind this myth is that we have built this civilization on philosophy. This civilization was not built on the free market. It was not built on mercantilism. It was not built on crony capitalism. It was built on philosophy. That's the only thing that sustains this civilization. Innocent until proven guilty, separation of church and state, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. These are all fundamental philosophical principles that both require justification and require that people be philosophical enough To resolve their disputes without running to the state, without running to the police, without running to their guns. And so the myth that the warriors will return in the kingdom's greatest need to free them from the ancient enemies that beset them in the past. That is the call for philosophers and the call has been going out for decades for philosophers to come and save the world from the predators, from the sophists, from the false teachers, from the false prophets. The call has been going out, the bat signal has been flicking and flicking and flicking and flicking and and the people are dying from a lack of principles and the philosophers are all sealed up in their useless ivory towers flicking back and forth these magically gathering cards of ultimate bullshit. And they are literally fiddling while Rome burns, to use an analogy that is historically (laughs) anachronistic. There was no fiddle back in Nero's time, but this call is constantly going out to the philosophers, but because they've been absorbed into the jab of the hut belly of the state, they care nothing for the people whose needs they are supposed to serve. Philosophy is there to serve the people, just as medicine is there to serve the sick. And the philosophers in academia are inside their sealed biosphere. Of dusty inconsequentiality and are refusing the cries and clamors and literally blood streaked falling hands on the outside of their pink biodome right the faces pressed the screaming the the deaths they play their useless card games in the depths of these empty chambers while the people die outside and then the people will break in and kill the philosophers at some point I mean Not literally, but uh, this is what will happen. This is what's happened throughout history. I want philosophy to be front and center when it comes to solving social problems, which is why I'm here and not there. So um, I think that's where philosophy needs to be. And um, I think that I remember reading a long time ago in one of Ayn Rand's nonfiction works that uh, during a time of intense crisis in America in the 1960s, Uh, There was, of course, Vietnam going on, there was student riots, protests, racial tensions, cities burning down, uh, imposition of the welfare state, uh, massive amounts of corruption and uh, predation at every level of government and even privately within society, the collapse of marriage, rises of divorce and so on. And she said during this time of crisis, the American Philosophical Association got together and the number one issue on their conference brochure was, do nouns really exist? Fuck them. Fuck them, these parasitical people betraying leeches of power. Sorry, go ahead.
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say that to me uh, this paradox was important because before I thought that it's possible to arrange a world in a clear and obvious manner, but this uh, broke this idea. And also that uh, if I talk about uh, Let's say this paradox, people just don't listen to me. But if I talk general philosophy, I get attacked. So, yeah, uh, you're right. You
0: will. Listen, the, the moment philosophy touches the real needs and issues of the people, you'll get attacked. Of course you will. <laughs> that's, that's the job. You know, I step into the ring with Muhammad Ali, and this is a weird thing. He tries to hit me. I don't know what his problem is. I mean, geez, what the hell? But that's the gig, right?
2: But but he talked about uh, Socrates. And uh, what bothers me about him is... Uh, that uh, when he had the option to leave Athens, he didn't leave, leave Athens. So I wanted to ask you, if you had the option, would you leave?
0: Who says I don't?
2: Uh-huh.
0: Who says I don't? We have that option all the time. Where was Socrates going to go? Athens, the Athenian society, was the most philosophical, and it wanted to kill him. And where was he going to go? to another society where things were going to be even worse you got to take a stand at some point and I've listened for those I've got a whole series which I did I don't know six years ago I think called The Trial and Death of Socrates, which people should really watch, because that's me wrestling, as Nietzsche has talked about, every philosopher wrestles with Socrates, and that's me wrestling with the giant forehead beast of Socratic thought and his ending and what it meant. So I'm just going to refer people to The Trial, of death of so- trial and Death of Socrates. I think it's a six-part series, really some of the best stuff I've ever done, if I do say so myself. And, um, you know, on the top of the Mountain of Diamonds, it's the Arkenstone. <laughs> but um, uh, so people can go and check that out there. So listen, man, I've got to move on to the next caller, but I really, really appreciate you bringing up this topic. It certainly brings up something in me. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Mark.
2: Thanks for the show. Bye. Bye.
0: All right. Oh, hang on. Okay, so um, for those who don't know, Mike will occasionally type helpful things to me, and sometimes he'll <laughs> type the following. <laughs> oh, no. Thunder, 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 thundercats, who... Or he will also write, (laughs) your powers combined. I am Captain Planet. Um, I don't know if he had a seizure or if this is some mistranslation of the serial box. You were talking
1: about summoning a philosopher as if a philosopher was a superhero to help the problems that are uh, ongoing in the world today. So I, of course, went back to my childhood and the cartoons that I watched with the heroes that were summoned. So, that's, uh, that's where that came Are from. the cats made of Thunder who? Is that No, like no, there's a, the main thunder cat is named Lion-O, I think. And, oh, uh, what's, uh, what's the villain?
0: You know, telling me their name, that's not telling me anything. The flu-boo
1: is <laughs> named poo <Pubat>. Okay, okay. <laughs>
0: does not help me with the flu-boo.
1: <laughs> He's not made of Thunder, stuff that I
0: remember. I'm going to have to go watch a clip after the show, but... Are these cats post Indian food? Who I don't. Anyway, so sometimes Mike is very helpful, and the other times he just apparently wants to make me cross-eyed. So,
1: <laughs> and Steph always the helpful friend points out when I'm not helpful and reads out my not helpfulness on the show. <laughs> Boy, I won't be self-conscious but, but
0: about helping. sharing things in the future, Steph. That'll work out great. <laughs> just you know, share the helpful stuff. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I knew. I kind of knew what it was. I've heard about the Thundercats. I don't know who Captain Planet is.
1: Oh, you know what? It might actually be fun to watch an old Captain Planet. It's like the most amazing environmentalist propaganda ever. You know, all the evil villains are just for no explicit reason. All developers. Well, they're all like evil capitalists, you know, or whatnot, who just wants to pollute the planet for no reason. Doesn't make any money from it. There's no profit in it. You just, I just want to destroy the environment because I'm sheer evil. <laughs> I'm paving over Bambi's Meadow because... <laughs> and then they have like this incredibly multicultural group of people with rings. And each ring represents fire or water or some other Earth element. And they can summon Captain Planet to his green hair, which I've never quite figured out why. And of course he beats the evil uh, capitalists or people
0: that want to tear down the rainforest for whatever reason. And, uh, or does he just go to Washington and ask for regulations until they give up creating jobs? Is that how he beats them? I'm sure he doesn't use violence because the... <laughs> Environmental lobby has never been keen on that.
1: He can fly, too. I, I
0: don't know. I shall smash you with a thundercat. Ooh. <laughs> All, right. All right. We could probably do this for quite a while, but we should probably, after I said, got to move on to the next caller. We probably okay. If folks want a Captain Planet review, let us know.
1: Right. Well, up next is Franklin. Franklin wrote in and said, I am a college student majoring in exercise physiology with a focus on biomedical sciences. I am awaiting admissions decisions to medical schools and want to use my possible future career to spread peaceful parenting from a unique perspective. What are some potential ramifications of taking a specialty like pathology and applying it to philosophy? As a main contributor to the advancement of medical science, I am intrigued at the potential of pathology as a vector for spreading philosophy amongst scientists. That's from Franklin.
0: Now, Franklin, you realize that you sound almost exactly like a supervillain of heroism, right? <laughs> I... I'm going to spread virtue like a pathology, airborne, waterborne. I don't know. I've got to get into the sewage system somehow. Uh, just We're talking metaphorically, right, not like some dust that makes people more rational, right?
3: Uh, yes. I have been told that I do sound like a supervillain
0: sometimes, though. Excellent. We will ship you a bald cat and continue this on webcam. All right. Um, All right. So I I don't really understand the question, but it sounds intriguing, so I wonder if you can break it out a little more.
3: Okay. um, It's a little complicated, um, which is why I wanted to talk about it. But pathology is just the study of disease. And it's a specialty in medicine that allows um, doctors to analyze you know, new diseases and they can you know, figure out how to differentiate different diseases and prescribe initial ways to deal with them. And I was thinking that, you know, can we diagnose child abuse or something like that?
0: oh you mean could you take a a brain scan and see the effects of child abuse on kids basically right well as far as I understand it the answer to that at the moment is yes that you can see um, enlarged amygdala you can see shrunken neofrontal cortexes and so on you can see the effects of child abuse on scans at the moment and it would be a very simple thing for people to be scanned for that but um, of course for a wide variety of reasons that's not about to happen
3: Yeah. And um, I mean, the the reason for my questioning really is that, you know, I have got accepted recently and um, there are a lot of specialties I could go into. And I'm just trying to think of the best way to get into something that will allow me to spread peaceful parenting.
0: Well, um, you know, it is a challenge. Uh, it is a challenge, of course, when you try to help children, um, who gets mad, right? Yeah. <laughs> parents, right. The parents get miss why teachers don't do it. It's why a lot of doctors don't do it. It's why it's a lot easier to say to parents, Oh, I'll prescribe him a pill rather than, Hey, would you like to not suck at parenting? <laughs> right. I mean, that is, um, that is a big challenge. Um, I don't know anyone who's been able to solve that challenge. I think you've just got to kind of grit your teeth and bear down on the problem and just walk through the fire or walk to the fire. Right. But uh, when you try to, um, you know, it, like if you figured out in the public school system, if you figured out how to change it so that it really appealed to children and they woke up like school. Great. <laughs> you know, like I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, it was like there was this slow descent into the sticky and abyss of listlessness when it came to like Sunday night. You know, like, Star Trek was on from 5 to 6. And then 6 o'clock, you'd be like, oh, I guess it's school tomorrow. <sighs> you know, you just get this sort of slow, <sighs> And um, if you had figured out a way where kids would say, you know, not yay school, because that would mean that they didn't like home, but it was like, yeah, Monday, okay, so I'm back to school. It's cool, right? It's good. Um, you know, like I... Um, I sometimes won't work much on a Sunday, but it's not like Sunday night I'm like, oh, tomorrow, back to the greatest philosophy show in the universe. Oh, right now. I mean, I get to not watch Star Trek. I get to be Star Trek as far as bringing new technology to the planet goes. And um, no, Mike, I won't read that. Um, I know it's tempting, but uh, I think he's back to (laughs) – yeah, back into your philosophy pit. (laughs) produce me some podcasts and you'll get some lotion to put on its skin anyway um so um if if you did find some way to make school really great for kids which is supposed to be (laughs) supposed to be the case they're the primary customers well who would get upset It's all the teachers right and all the administrators and everyone else who currently loves the existing system where they don't have to please the customer i mean pleasing the customer trust me i have to do it every day Sucks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, it keeps you on the straight and narrow. You have to do a good job. You can't just do something half-assed and, and all that. So, It's the same thing with trying to improve parenting in the world. Um, the, the, the big landmine of tripwire trigger guilt from people who've been bad parents uh, is the big, silent, thou shalt not cross line. None shall pass who make me feel guilty for having been a bad parent and so on. Um, or for whom negative consequences might accrue. Uh, And I don't think it's the men in particular, but that's neither here nor there. So it is a a challenge, you know. I mean, I don't think other than sort of raising general awareness of good parenting practices, um, I don't think that there is uh, any easy way to do it. And I think it's tough for doctors, right? I mean, because you may see clear signs of child abuse. It's all very recent, right? I mean, it was really up in in the 1950s that uh, one doctor, I can't remember his name, began to question the number of, quote, falling down the stairs, accidents that happened to kids repeatedly and he began to really examine the x-rays uh, of these sort of broken bones and realized they were like twist fractures and so on that could not really have come from impact but could only have come from physical violence and uh it was really only in the i think it was the mid to late 1950s which is pretty recent when it comes to the world as a whole that's like a couple of generations and it was only very recently that um the degree of brutality towards children began to even be recognized as a potential issue. You know, rape has been illegal for, for the raping women has been illegal for thousands of years. Uh, And, uh, but, but actually abusing children, the idea that um, it is uh, something which is a medical issue that needs to be addressed. It's very recent, very recent. It is much newer than women's rights. Vindication of the Rights of Women was written hundreds of years ago. And um, the idea that children are deserving of the greatest moral protections in society and the most positive behavior is such an incomprehensible thought for most people. Like if you go to, to any reasonable person, at least in the West, and you say women should be legally equal to men, and they're like, well, Yeah. <laughs> Of course, except feminists who think that they should be superior and get special benefits because they're so into empowering women that they have to have the government negotiate wages on their behalf. Let me not go that way. That way madness lies. But um, so the idea that, that children should be at the, the very center of the moral universe and should be afforded the greatest protections and the most liberties uh, that, that are possible is incomprehensible for people. I mean, if you tried to set up adult, an adult job the way that you set up government schools, Uh, People would look at you like you're a fascist, like you're, you know, well, I'm going to tell you where you can work and I'm going to tell you what time to show up and I'm going to send work home with you. And if, at least when I was a kid, you know, if you don't do work to people's satisfactions, then I'm going to hit you on your bare ass with a cane or I'm going to hit you with a ruler or I'm going to scream at you or I'm going to make you stay late and write out lines for me. People would look at you like you are an unholy fascist to treat adults this way. Uh, oh, and by the way, you know, I'm going to tell you exactly what you should do with every moment of the day, and you're going to have zero feedback whatsoever, and you can't quit. And you can't quit uh, at all. And I'll pay you what I damn well feel like, and it's going to be a lot less than you want, but you have to suck it up. Because if you don't go here, you don't come to this school, you and you don't pay, you go to jail, right? I mean, if you tried to set this up for adults, they'd say, you are a totalitarian asshole. Nope, just a school administrator and people who support it. Um, so the idea that we should have the highest moral standards for children, as the least the, the, the citizens with the least power and the most dependence. That we should have the highest moral standards is still largely incomprehensible. Because I mean, any time, and this is—it I mean, sounds like I'm not talking about it, but I—but I am. And you know, for more on the history of this, I've got an audiobook reading of Lloyd DeMas's great book, *The Origins of War in Child Abuse*. Uh, which you can find at freedomainradio.com slash free. Just scroll down. It's on a podcast feed. Just download and listen to it. It's it's grim, but it's incredibly eye-opening. Um, it's like getting cataracts cut away with a blade saw. <laughs> it's not pretty, but you see better afterwards. Um, but the idea is so incomprehensible. Like you just talk about, like go post uh, the, 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 the truth about spanking or the facts about spanking presentation, which we've got on the, at youtube.com slash freedom and radio to search for spanking actually don't search for spanking on youtube as a whole make sure you're on our channel anyway you understand but the idea you just post something like that and people say well but what if basically they say well what if my child is doing something i don't like or that could be dangerous surely i should hit them then and of course if you were to say that about women you know what if my wife is doing something i don't like or she's driving too fast or doing something that could be dangerous i get to deck her right (laughs) It's like incomprehensible that you wouldn't. Well, you know, if I don't, if I don't, if you don't hit your women, if you don't beat your women up, then they'll grow up disrespectful of authority. (laughs) I mean, this is like, where are we? UAE? Uh, And, and, you know. Women don't listen to reason. You've got to punch them because, you know, they're just selfish and they're just mean and they're just ir- irrational and immature and feeling based. And you don't listen to I'm, – I'm just waiting for people to cut that out of context. It's <laughs> the usual thing. But, um, you know, how, how am my how my wife supposed to learn the difference between right and wrong if I don't hit her? <laughs> well, not hitting her, my doubt. But um, it, is, it is very new. You know, there's, there's something that's been said about revolutions. It's always earlier than you think. And that's true, because when you're in the midst of a revolution, and we're certainly doing a revolution here, but when you're in the midst of a revolution, when you're enmeshed in it, it's the product of many years of considered thought. And you're so far ahead of the pack that you think that you're leading someone, and you're like, wow, people are following me. Lots and lots of people are following me. Why are they screaming? Boy, they seem to have a lot of torches and pitchforks. They're not following me. They're chasing me. Run! Right? Because it's always earlier than you think. Ah! My friends, fellow citizens, I stand upon this pulpit, I stand upon Calvary, and I say to you, hit not thy children, scream not at thy children, and do not terrify thy children with climate change and hell. <laughs> because they can at least disbelieve in hell. <laughs> do not do not abuse thy children. Teach them gently and be nice to them. Because as Jesus said, what you do to the least of them, so also do you do unto me. And I've been to a lot of cathedrals. I've never seen one picture of Jesus being spanked by a believer. I'm sure that somewhere on the internet. <laughs> I'm just frightened to look. Jesusspank.net for the kinkiest shepherds in your flock. And so you, you you go out and you say this and it's perfectly reasonable to you, right? You go, it's perfectly reasonable, right? Because... It's not a revolution to you, right? It's just, okay, this is the way things are, right? It is a revolution that is, to everyone else, not only incomprehensible, but evil, right? It's one thing to have a scientific revolution. It's another thing to have a revolution which recasts the light and shadow of good and evil, right? It's like switching. You've got a room full of statues with a light only at one end. And you switch the light to the other side, and everything that was in shadow is now in light, and everything that was light is now in shadow. And when you bring a moral revolution, well, that which was virtuous has become evil, and that which was evil has become virtuous. And so when you say to parents, well, hitting your children, yelling at your children, intimidating your children, bullying your children uh, is really counterproductive and destructive and is destroying the world. And then, and you should stop doing it, well... Um, that is virtually unbearable. And the first thing that people do is they run to each other for reinforcement about how virtuous they are and how bad you are, and then they attack, right? That's just the way (laughs) things inevitably are going to go. And the only reason you do it is because you care about the future and the security and safety and peace of mind of children. And that's why you would do it. So it's very new. And most people, when they first encounter the idea of peaceful parenting, they genuinely have the thought cross their mind that peaceful parenting is child abuse. And that's often how they will cast it. You know, in the same way that some people say, you know, in certain cultures, not beating your women is an act of contempt. Beating your woman is an act of love. Not beating your woman is an act of contempt or hatred or indifference, right? And they recast it in this kind of way. So people genuinely say not hitting your children is destructive and immoral parenting because kids just have no respect if you don't hit them, (laughs) right? And it's like, you know, try that. You know, uh, I really feel I need the respect of my employees, so I'm going to go around with a baseball bat and crack them on the back of the neck (laughs) because, you know, it's really important that they respect me as a manager and value my feedback. Whap, 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 you know, suddenly you're (laughs) like Robert De Niro in The Untouchables. So this reorienting of that which is virtuous is, you know, and women's rights were was, was very easy to achieve because men have evolved to please women. Because women are the gatekeepers, at least they were, <laughs> before socialists opened up the glory hole. Uh, so women are the gatekeepers of sexual access. And anybody who didn't please women didn't get to pass along those genes. So for men, men's desire to please women is, um, is genetically selected. I'm sure you understand all of that. And so when women say, we want, men are like, okay. How much, in what quantities, and can I get black lung procuring it for you? Because, okay, as long as I get to pass my seed along, I don't care if I cough up my uh, lung bits in some uh, Eric Blair story. So, but children's rights, children's rights, childism, right? So sexism and racism and nationalism and so on. But childism, which is society's not even refusal to see children as moral agents in need of the most protection in society, but childism is the genuine belief that initiating violence against against children, both verbal and physical abuse against children, is virtuous and necessary, and it is the only way that virtue can exist in the world. It's the only way that virtue can exist in the world. That is really a tough thing to turn around. Women at least could speak for themselves, and women could pull a Chirac and refuse to have sex. Uh, they can refuse sexual access. Um, children, what What can they do? They have no power. They require other people to speak for them. And, of course, by the time most children have grown up through these god-awful chambers of trauma, they're, they're too smashed up to stand up for kids because they were broken down themselves as children. It takes a A willed act of frankenstein like reassembling to be able to stand up for children because you have to piece together What happened to you as a child to work through all that pain and then you can stand and then you can stand in a way That's incomprehensible and it's strength to people, but that's a topic for another time And so i'm i'm sort of pointing out I love the fact that you're interested in communicating uh, Peaceful parenting and I do genuinely believe that social pathologies like violence like war like rape sexual predation of every kind that these pathologies can be traced back to the pathology of child abuse. That it is something which, uh, you know, you harm children verbally, physically, sexually. It takes root in their soul. They grow up and it spreads like a virus, right? Violence is a set of epigenetics that wishes to reproduce just like every other organism in the world. And it reproduces by fucking with children. That's how it reproduces. And the, the violent epigenetics, the epigenetic violent genes... They want to breed. They want to reproduce just like every bacteria in a petri dish wants to breed and wants to reproduce. And uh, violence is their porn, right? I mean, it is is how this gene set of violence reproduces. It reduces intelligence and lower IQ means more violence. It increases fight or flight. It reduces the neofrontal cortex capacity to intercept and interrupt and stamp down emotional impulses. Right, you look at a guy funny, he, he's hit you before he's even know it. Well, that's the violent gene that wishes to reproduce, and it's reproducing itself by hitting you. By hitting you, it's transferring the, it's activating the epigenetic gene set of violence in you, and that's how it reproduces. Uh, for more on this, um, Dr. Murray A. Strauss, who's been on this show, has got an article, which we'll link to below, but you can Google. It. It's called The Primordial Violence, Spanking Children, Psychological Development, Violence, and Crime." Social dysfunction of every kind, virtually all social dysfunction, can be traced back to abuse and neglect in childhood. And so whatever we can do to reduce that is how we stop this uh, insanely evil virus of violence from reproducing. It doesn't listen to reason, because violence is the antithesis of reason. Why are you so against the initiation of force? Because that's the opposite of philosophy, (laughs) You know, it's like it's some some doctor who's out there risking his life to fight Ebola. And you say, well, what if you got against Ebola, man? (laughs) I mean, it's just a virus that's trying to survive like everything else. It's like, yes, but at our expense. Sorry, I'm going to side with the bipeds over the bat carried bushmeat brain fungus of Ebola. And it's the same thing. Well, why do I fight so strongly against violence? Because. It's the opposite of philosophy. Philosophy is reason and negotiation and appeal to evidence. It's the opposite of violence. Violence is the domination of one person through fear and pain over another. It's not philosophy. It's the complete opposite. You know, why do you fight so hard against something and everything, which is the exact opposite of everything that's virtuous and good? Well, I don't even have to ask that. Well, why as a doctor would you fight against illness? You know what being a doctor is, right? That's kind of the geek. So, uh, sorry for that long ramble. I want to get your thoughts on it. But those are some of the challenges that I see facing people who are promoting um, respect for children and and fighting the insidious bigotry of childism around the world.
3: Well, a big part of what you said about how parents get very defensive. I mean, I've seen this firsthand while shadowing other physicians. And um, that's why pediatrics is probably, you know, not even an option for me. And it's kind of crazy. It makes it seem like you'd have to be a woman in order to be able to get in a few words to spread peaceful parenting, you know,
0: given to given the
3: extra credibility you'd get.
0: Oh, I don't know, man. Women turn on women like nobody's business. Like. Women, like there's the thing say, oh, well, you know, if you're a black guy, you can talk about black issues and you're relatively okay. No, you're not. (laughs) Oh, if you're a woman, you Uh, can talk about, you know, different women's issues and you're relatively okay. No, look at the savagery that people treated Ayn Rand with. She was a woman and she was a a highly intelligent, professional woman, incredibly successful screenwriter, playwright or novelist, public speaker. One of the great geniuses of the 20th century. Boom, vicious on her. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Anne Coulter, Phyllis Schlafly, Michelle Bachman, um, Sarah Palin. I mean, Bill Maher openly called her a see you next Tuesday word. I mean, and and feminists didn't rush to her defense. No, the only safe place to be is on the left when it comes to the media. Uh, being a woman won't help you at all if you're not on the left. Um, they'll just... They'll just go insane against you. I mean, look at uh, Karen Strawn goes to give speeches. And uh, she gets so she has to face down things like bomb threats. And someone like, I gave a speech at a men's rights conference in Detroit. You know, bomb threats, threats of violence. Anyone cover that? Lots of women speaking there. Karen Strawn was one of them. I spoke there. Hey, you've got to get up there saying, hey, help her make it to the end of the speech without being a human shadow on the back wall that's currently in the parking lot. So the fact that you're a woman, look at Erin Pitsey. She's been... Uh, uh, P.I. said, why? Just look at what happened to her. Uh, she had to flee England because of bomb threats and death threats because she simply um, pointed out that uh, women could sometimes participate in abuse. Wow. Being, I mean, there's this idea that you get this this halo um, uh, of uh, invulnerability if you're a woman speaking out about women's issues. Um, I don't see the evidence for that at all. I, I, I see equal amounts of viciousness coming towards women if women question the dominant narrative uh, in the same way that you know if you're a black guy and you talk out against some of the excesses of uh, certain radical black elements you know uncle tom and, and they're just vicious uh, against you uh, you know uh, herman mccain from the last presidential run was a real black like <laughs> raised in hawaii half black half white not exactly from the hood and uh, sorry herman cain uh, herman cain um You know, a very successful black businessman, a very good public speaker and so on. I mean, they just tore him down. Him being black didn't give him... But now Obama's on the left, so um, he gets, you know, all of the uh, deep tissue massages that the uh, mainstream media can lavish on him. Uh, And uh, Herman Cain, who was, I mean, you could argue, much more had much more of the genuine black experience in America compared to, um, you know, half-Muslim, (laughs) all-tanned... Um, Mr. Mococino, but um, I mean, they just, they just tore him down, they just tore him apart, and uh, you know, left his body out for the <laughs> vultures to pick at. So, I think there is this fantasy that if you're a woman, you can get much further, but I think if you talk to female activists, particularly to do with things like men's rights, I think they'd say that they're not feeling a whole lot of invulnerability in these issues. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, I actually didn't. Sorry, yeah. women won't save you. That's, no. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. No one is coming to save you. You must do it yourself.
3: Damn it. I was hoping to get an operation or something. Oh well.
0: <laughs>
3: Maybe then, I don't know. Uh, well, um, I mean I guess we have to just try to outpopulate them or wait for them to die or something. I don't know.
0: Well the outpopulating isn't gonna happen because smarter people are breeding less and less intelligent people are breeding more. Sorry about that. Oh, Dysgenics! No. The wave of the future. Feel like you've had just a little bit too much human intelligence and high-achievement We've got a solution for you. We'll separate women from men and pay the least intelligent women to have the most children. Plus, then we'll traumatize them and make sure that they don't breastfeed as much as possible by saying it interferes with their autonomy and personhood. And we'll put them in really, really terrible schools. And if they have even an ounce of intelligence, we'll put them in increasingly deteriorating public schools. Well, they'll stuff them to the gills with even lower achieving students to the point where they can't get any kind of education at all. Welcome to the pinnacle. Of achievement in Western civilization called ah, you know there's studies that that are out there that seem to point out that the late, late Victorian uh, British people or late Victorian Western Europeans were an average of thirteen IQ points smarter than we are today. Wow, thirteen IQ points. That's a lot. That is a lot. That's the difference between barely scraping out of high school and doing a master's. That is a very big IQ chunk. And um, modern society is a brain parasite. Like it literally is eating the brains of the world. There's a reason why zombie movies are so popular. Because we all kind of get deep down that this is what's happening. Is we're producing more and more people with fewer and fewer brains. (laughs) And fewer and fewer social skills. But we're actually working on a whole presentation about that. So... I think outbreeding them might not be the strategy that that's going to work.
3: Uh, wow. Okay, uh, this raises my confidence for the future.
0: But listen, I, I don't want to. I don't want you to imagine it's going to be easy. Oh no, no. You know, because if if you're going to climb Mount Everest and you think, well, you know, I've climbed four sand dunes before. How bad can it be? You're not going to pack for the trip, and you can freeze solid to the mountain. Above where any helicopter can rescue you, and have some pitiful satellite phone conversation to everyone to tell them that you're going to be dead soon, right? So um, it is not, uh, you know, you you need to gird yourself for the long run. You know, this is not a battle uh, that is uh, going to be win going to be won. You know, there's a uh, soon or, or or quickly. There's a great quote from Winston Churchill, and he was talking, I think, in 1941 or 1942. I can't remember exactly. And he said, um, with regards to the war, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end of the war. It may, however, be the end of the beginning. And his constant reaffirmation of where we were in the war at that time, in the fight against uh, national socialism, which, you know, you win, of course, by voting in the Labour Party. But anyway... Um, his constant reminder to people that it's what is he famous for this is going to be a long ugly bloody conflict I can promise you nothing but blood sweat toil and tears that's all he's got to offer and um, we will fight them without we will fight them even with no hope of victory we will fight them on the seas we will fight them on the oceans we will fight them on the beaches we will fight them in the mountains even with no hope of victory should it come to that and he was chillingly realistic with regards to the task at hand and by not giving people a false hope by reminding them that is that it is a marathon you know if you think that the race is 500 meters you're going to run a particular way which is going to be a wind sprint if you know that the race is 26 miles You're going to pace yourself so that you can actually cross the finish line rather than have your heart explode at 501 meters, right? So I just, I want to be clear with you about, and I've said this, of course, from the beginning of the show. It's a long haul. It's a long haul. There's a lot of resistance. And the great challenge with fighting immorality is when you're outnumbered by people who have immoral principles, they can cling to each other rather than see the truth. Right. They can run to other deluded people. Like if if there's the last member of religion, you maybe can talk him out of it. But if there's a billion people in that religion, you start to make someone uneasy. They just run back to those other people who reinforce their prior prejudices. So they become kind of a arm in arm, invulnerable wall of advancing irrationality. So um, we, we have, of course, the greatest opportunity and hope and possibility that has ever existed in human history. I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that this conversation is not just between you and I going to be broadcast out to millions of people around the world no pressure <laughs> but uh, that is uh that is an incredibly unforeseen possibility that this is no nobody guessed it nobody guessed that this was going to be possible that this was going to be economically realistic that that, that you could do this you know we didn't need a million dollar studio we just you know it's like that old song i think it's um the bob dylan All I have is three chords and the truth. And I have like three principles, UPP, non-aggression principle, property rights, whatever. I've got three chords and the truth. And um, the fact that we can have an un conversation that can go out to millions of people around the world is an unprecedented shot in the arm for philosophy uh, that uh, is something we should be enormously grateful for. The fact that we're having this conversation, my friend, is exactly why, if we work hard enough, not only can we win, we will win. But we have to recognize that no one is going to move these rocks but us. And while we move these rocks, people are going to throw rocks at us. And sometimes they'll hit us and sometimes they're hurt and most times it'll miss. But no one's going to move these rocks but us. And after we've almost finished moving the rocks that clear the way to a freer future, everybody will immediately pretend they were on our side the whole time, (laughs) right? They'll they'll come down from the mountains where they've been rolling boulders down to try and crush us. And they'll say, hey, man, I've been with you from the beginning. You were totally right. (laughs) You know, once they see which way the tide is turning, they'll suddenly switch sides so that they can be on the winning side. And to their delightfully weird innocence, they actually won't even remember (laughs) the past as far as that goes. So, uh, you know, m- m- pace yourself and measure yourself. We're going to cross the finish line and we're going to win. But only as long as we accept that it's A, going to be hard, and B, the moment we stop, we lose. Right? So it's like this is like biking up a 45-degree incline. Okay, it's going to be a bit of a haul. Your legs are going to get pretty tired. And there's times where you wish you'd never got on the damn bike. But the moment you stop pedaling, you give up everything you've gained. So um, I just really want to give you that thing. We're going to win. But as long as uh, – uh, only if we assume we – It's not going to happen if we don't work hard at it and only if we remember that it's a marathon, not a sprint.
3: All right. Well, um, I have a lot more clarity now thanks to this conversation. And um, I just want to let you know that um, I came from a really bad background. And even though I was, or I still am, a very very Christian-like person, you know, the peaceful parenting message was strong enough to keep me listening. And as I got in more, I started applying more rationality, and um, it's, it's amazing. I went from being in the military, and now I'm going to matriculate into med school. You know that's, And I, I feel like a lot of it could not have happened without this rationality. So.
0: Man, that's a, that's a beautiful thing to say. And I, I hugely appreciate that. And I got to be honest and no, you know, you describe yourself as a Christian-like person. I have no issues with that. You know, call me up seven years ago. <laughs> we might have had a different conversation. I don't mean to offend the Christians in the audience, but I have evolved. <laughs> so uh, I have no problem. And look, if, if Christianity has been part of turning you from a breaker of bodies to a healer of bodies, from somebody who disassembles people to somebody who puts them back together... Praise be to Jesus. I'm all for it. Uh, and I appreciate your kind words about the effect that this show, this conversation has had on that process. So uh, I I feel incredibly honored to have been whatever part of that transformation in your soul uh, that I've been a part of. I'm incredibly honored. And, and thank you so much for sharing that.
3: Well, um, thanks for uh, helping. And I look forward to continue supporting the show.
0: And congratulations, Mr future good doctor that's uh, an amazing thing especially as you say you come from a difficult background to be able to achieve that level of focus and dedication uh, is something to be intensely proud of and uh, you know I'll, I'll call you if i ever do something with my elbow bird hurts but, oh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks man keep us posted right. if you can all right all right take care you too
1: all right up next is Radek. He wrote in and said, "Despite being a hardcore anarcho-capitalist and following the non-aggression principle towards my children, I have a disturbing feeling that I'm raising children who are going to be communists. I'm scared as hell. Please help."
0: Well, that's uh, yeah. I, I was reading that and I'm like, interesting, interesting. What? <laughs> <laughs> so, you raising a bunch of commies? <laughs> really? Yeah,
4: I, I think I think right, so. Do tell <clears throat> um so i have i have that feeling that um that we middle class uh, we are producing uh, children and they are uh simply communists uh, and uh, the best way to to solve the problem of of the the world problem of the government uh, i think uh is probably stop raising communists. Because um, the communists, as such, they're dying out because they have no uh, real families, they have uh, uh, not so many children. And um, as a species, the communists, they're dying out, but they breeding. Uh, they become uh, they came into existence in in uh, middle class families and um, this is a core problem for me
0: are you saying that there's something about middle class families that encourages uh, communism
4: I, ha- I I think that uh, yes yes I think that uh, Child raising, as we are practicing it now in uh, civilized societies, uh, leads in some way, in some mysterious way, to produce communist mindset. And I'm
0: sorry, I, I why, only, why, why, I, why why is it mysterious? I mean, isn't it a lot to do with the dictatorship that uh, young boys and girls go through where they you know half or or two thirds of them can go through almost to puberty and never encounter any kind of legitimate male authority figure They're raised by single moms or with distant or non-existent or divorced uh, and gone dads uh, the, the the teachers of their young childhood experiences are all women uh, and the dictates of society are all about sentimental feels rather than rational analysis and uh, you know a lot of these women aren't that keen on teaching little boys how to think because odds are they might end up out thinking their teachers and the little girls too so i don't know that it's that mysterious we've just we've put women in charge of childhood and um, women in charge of, of education um, and the result is that uh, you know we got a bunch of socialists running about you know, socialists, kids, um, the feeling of of weakness and dependence that they have mirrors the historical evolution of women's weakness and dependent on dependence on men because of being disabled by childbirth and breastfeeding for 15 to 20 years of their middle age, right, youth to middle age. And so the idea that there's some mysterious agency out there that's just going to give you stuff because you're needy. Well, that's a genuinely and generally and wonderfully feminine attitude. It's not criticism of it. It's just perfectly natural. When we evolved as a species, women were uh, disabled and required men and the rest of the tribe to bring them resources uh, and um, couldn't fend for themselves and couldn't take care of their own children. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly natural. And so to me, the lefty stuff um, has just kind of come out of this general perception that um, there's this giant resource machine in the sky that's supposed to rain goodies on you because you want to need stuff. Well, that's that's the woman who's, you know, seven months pregnant who's got a baby hanging off each tit. She needs that. And so I you know, that we did a whole show a couple of years ago on the degree to which giving women the vote has accelerated the tendency towards big government, big daddy husband government. And so I, I don't know that it's particularly mysterious right like i mean we're just working on a show which i'll just touch on very briefly here which is you know children have never been safer than in the modern west and parents have never been more frightened of bad things happen happening to their children why is that well i sort of noticed when i was growing up that single moms are voracious consumers of women and children in peril stories you know these like uh i thought he was a great guy turns out he was a lizard-eyed sociopath Couldn't have guessed it from all the tats, but there it is, you know, and then chasing women in peril, trying to protect their children. Uh, Single moms live to a large degree in that kind of world, and it's projection from their own bad decisions. We have to get into all of that, but um, the fact is that women are hardwired, I believe, to be more cautious around what their children do and to be more scared of negative things happening to their children. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful part of femininity, but you kind of need a man around. It's the yin yang to balance that out, right? Yeah, you want to jump from the fifth step? If you feel it's safe, go for it, you know? And uh, generally, they are. I mean, I was raised free range uh, as a kid. Uh, I was basically, I'd come home from school. My mom was working. uh, I'd go out and play. Uh, I'd be home, I'd, I'd eat something, I'd go out and play and then I'd come home and I'd go to bed and we'd just roam the neighborhood. I'd roam the neighborhood, find friends, we'd f- figure out something to do. We never had any money or barely any money. We'd figure out something to do, we'd negotiate, we'd solve problems, we'd we'd uh, deal with uh, any difficult other kids uh, through a variety of methods. So for me, it's like spontaneous self-organization. Yeah, that's my childhood. That's not people's childhoods anymore. Now everything's structured. And you gotta to go to Chuck E. Cheese, or you gotta to go to a movie, or you gotta here's here's three bucks for air hockey and, and uh you've got to go to some place where there are adults around and you gotta have play dates where the adults are around there to solve any problems you have and right, so this central planned childhood is resulting in a whole bunch of socialist kids. I mean, I get all of that. That's not you know, but that's just what happens when there's a giant nuclear shadow where the penis of the family used to be right men and women are complementary two pieces of jigsaw puzzle that fit together but they're different and the way that moms raise kids in general is different from the way that dads raise kids and they're both essential and they're both important and mom teach little kids about the fields and dads teach the bigger kids about risk there's nothing wrong with it and again these are all gross generalizations broad categories dare i say Um, so this idea that oh there's some weird mysterious, gosh, what's happened? Why are we getting so many socialists? Well, I mean, when you are out there taking risks as a child, roaming the neighborhood, going into the woods, you know, having campfires and and building your forts and and trying to negotiate with other kids and so on, well, there's a lot of spontaneous self-organization and there's no authority to appeal to in resolving your disputes. You know, if, if some kid doesn't behave in a way that you like, or says, well, you just don't invite that kid to play or you go play somewhere else or whatever. So I think it's pretty natural for kids to spontaneously self-organize when they don't have the adult bots hovering over all the time, or oh, but they're not in a structured environment, uh, but they have to go out and make their own fun. Uh, my whole childhood was this glorious anarchy in a lot of ways. I mean, weird dictatorship at home, but glorious anarchy uh, outside of boarding school and school and the home, where we were just spontaneously organizing things, and there was no authority figure. We just had to work things out horizontally. So for me, I've experienced firsthand for many years the spontaneous self-organization of childhood um, when there are no authority figures around. So the idea for me of not having an authority figure in society is like, well, that was the best part of my childhood, so let's have more of that. Why not? And this is pretty common for kids as a whole. They don't have adults around that they'll solve their own uh, issues and the books that i was reading were all about self-sufficient kids who didn't need adults to resolve their disputes and didn't have to run to run to run to mommy or daddy every time they got into a conflict that they just worked these things out uh, horizontally and uh, that certainly mirrored my own experience so i think that free-range kids you know where they can go and do their own thing and you're not constantly around solving their problems is um where we were and where society was a lot more free and now that we've got it's not it's not a nanny state it's nanny parenting which is largely female centric parenting that then translates into everyone thinking that you need some adults or bigger authority figure to resolve all your, all your disputes because we're not trusting to um, the kids to, to work out their own disputes and of course you do that within the family by resolving disputes with your children in a peaceful and productive way you know like Peaceful parenting is not, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but just for people out there who may be somewhat new, I'm always sort of conscious of of new listeners coming into the conversation, but peaceful parenting is not, I haven't yelled at or spanked my kids today, right? That's, that's not, that's like saying having a great career is not having embezzled on any given day. It's like, no, it's good that you didn't embezzle. That's not quite the same as having a great career. I didn't punch the customer. Capitalist victory is like, no, the fact that you didn't punch your customer is great. Now you actually have to engage with and satisfy your customers needs in a way that makes them want more and all that. And so uh, peaceful parenting is modeling and, and interacting with your children in a way that helps them to solve Disputes and conflicts with you so that they can then translate that into the outside world. It's, it's modeling the win-win interactions. It's getting right in there at their level and explaining things to them in a way that they understand. Uh, and um, through that, they can start to work out creative solutions with their friends because you've modeled that with them uh, at home. Peaceful parenting is a very engaged process. You're not a peaceful parent if your kid spent four hours on the tablet and you didn't yell at them once. That is a neglectful, unengaged uh, parent. And again, I'm not saying this is any anything um, that, that you're saying. I'm just sort of giving it in the bigger context. You know, peaceful parenting is not unparenting. You know, unparenting is they'll figure it all out themselves. And that's just physiologically not true. The human brain doesn't mature for women until their early 20s and for men until their late 20s. And kids need a lot of guidance. They need a lot of civilizing. Uh, and um, engaged parenting is is, is peaceful parenting. Uh, peaceful parenting is not the absence of violence. Um, and Like, you know, when, when a murderer is asleep, he's not killing anyone except in his dreams. We doesn't mean that he's a, a virtuous person. He's just not doing a bad thing. Now, it's great to stop hitting your children and yelling at them and threatening them and so on and putting them in timeouts. It's like, it's good to stop doing that. But that's, all that is, is you're not going in the wrong direction anymore. It doesn't mean you're going in the right direction yet. It just means you've decelerated the wrongs that you're doing, but then you need to replace all of that with negotiation and and uh, modeling of how to create win-win situations. Because if you keep having win-lose situations, all they learn is that power wins and there's no other way to resolve dispute, hence you end up with um statism as a philosophy in society Well, people can't agree you just need a central power to make things happen because that's how things were solved in my house and uh that's all i got to go on so let's let's not talk the abstractions though if you don't mind about the origins of communism in middle-class families and i'm sure that jim penman who's been on this show would agree with you about the degree to which you got socialist 60s out of the plenty of the 50s but um Let's talk about your parenting. Is there something specific that you're doing or not doing that you think might be encouraging this kind of communism in your kids?
4: Um, so I think my, my oldest child uh, is the most, uh, has the most uh, communistic um, tendencies. Uh, and uh, uh, we have uh, spent the most time caring for her. So my problem is that if if we probably we are overdoing something.
0: Okay, but what do you, what do you think you might be overdoing? Uh, just give me Over, give me some specifics. I,
4: I I have a feeling that um, a communist mindset is is um, is simply a mechanism where people are getting stuff unearned, as a as uh, in childhood, so they're getting much too much they do not work for it they do not um, they don't have much to uh, an um, extended frustration uh, to to yearn for something they just get stuff get attention get everything what they need and this can lead to development of personality that is uh, demanding for the whole life, so this classical um, Obama phone lady, uh, in my eyes, is, is simply a person who was always getting, as a child, everything she wanted, probably. And, and she sorry, how old understand is your understand the concept sorry. Of sorry. not...
0: I sorry, I don't want to talk about the Obama phone lady. I want to talk about your family. What? Uh, how old is your daughter what son? Doesn't matter. How old Twelve. is your eldest? Twelve. Twelve. Okay. And does the child have responsibilities in the household?
4: Uh, not so much. A little, but uh, she doesn't like to like do too much. Uh,
0: well, of course she doesn't like to do them. I mean, nobody likes doing chores. <laughs> Yay, I get to clean the bathroom. <laughs> what a great day for me, right? I mean, of course, the tax time Yummy, right? I mean, we all have the ah dentistry. Great, can you just scrape my gums in a sadistic manner that I'm sure you enjoy? That only happens to be helpful for my gums. I mean, of course she doesn't want to do that. That's the that's the whole point, right? I mean, you wouldn't need discipline if everything in life was fun, right? She wouldn't be alive if everything in life was fun. But um, so so, there's things that she doesn't want to do that I assume are reasonable that she do, right? Is that fair to say? Uh.
4: I, I, have, I have simply a feeling that
0: she... No, 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 no feelings. I'm asking okay. for specifics, right? So you said that she does have some responsibilities in the household that she doesn't want to do, right? Yes. Okay. And what happens if she doesn't do them? Um,
4: probably nothing. In
0: first. What do you mean nothing? Do you mean like it's exactly the same as if she is doing them? Like there's no difference in your behavior?
4: I can't can't force it. So if she
0: doesn't... But that's not your only uh, choice. That's not your only choice. I mean, you have a job, I'm assuming, uh, and you've had jobs in the past. Nobody forces you to work. They don't stand there saying, I'm going to hit you with this cricket bat if you don't do your TPS report, right? But there are consequences to you not working. Right. So it's not a matter of aggression or, or violence or intimidation or abuse or yelling or hitting. I'm not saying you're considering any of those. But if she I'll, I'll just make up a chore. Right. So maybe it's her job to clear the table after dinner. Right. I just make something up. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, the first thing, of course, that you need to get from her is agreement that that's a reasonable thing. If you don't have agreement ahead of time, then you just end up having to escalate. With aggression after the fact or pretend that there was no agreement so and the way i've had conversations with kids about this is like you know she's like well i don't want to do stuff it's like of course you <laughs> of course you don't want to do stuff i get that i mean we all have that in life and when you're a baby you should never have to do stuff you don't want to do when you're a baby but part of growing up is not being a baby anymore, right? You go to the washroom when you have to go to the washroom. You don't poop in your pants. You don't have a good shirt when you feel like it. Uh, You end up having freedom and and, and liberties and, and all of that, but with freedom comes responsibility. And so when you're a baby, you don't have chores. Your chore is don't fall down the stairs and eat your applesauce, right? And so when you're a baby, you don't have... A chores. You don't have things that you're expected to do. But as you grow up, that's the price of growing up. You, know, you, get, you get to climb stairs on your own. You get to go play uh, outside if you want on your own. You, whatever. You get to bathe yourself. You, all these liberties and freedoms. And with, you have to do jobs. I said, do you think, you know, you can say, do you think my day is every single thing that I want to do no matter what? It's all just a blissful stepping like a frog on a fantastic lily pad from joy to joy. No. It's things that I want to do and things that I don't want to do. And there's always going to be things in life that you don't want to do, right? Now, there's ways to make it fun, you know, like you're clearing the table, I'm doing the dishes, we can chat, we can enjoy each other's company and so on. So, I, you know, I would say you recognize that the tables, the, 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 you know, at least until, you know, <laughs> Venus Project robot mummy arms come built into the ceiling, that somehow the plates and the cutlery and the cups have to get from the table to the kitchen, right? I think, you know, we all try and do it with your mind. You know, <laughs> you can have fun with these guys. They try lift, go, right? I mean, even If you had to do it with your mind, still have to do it. They don't get there on their own. Somebody has to do it. Now, I'd go through the list of the things that I do during the day that is sort of my chores or whatever. And, um, you know, I'd point out, you know, sometimes when I'm napping on the couch, the sun hits my eyes, I've got to turn my head, hell of a lot of work. But you sort of point out, okay, so is it reasonable, you know, you have a day which is like 90% play, you know, if it's a weekend or whatever, and is it reasonable to say that out of the sort of, I don't know however old your kids are, out of the 15 hours that you're awake, is it reasonable for you to do 20 minutes of chores? Because if you don't do them, I have to do them, or mom has to do them, right? So is, is it is it unreasonable to say out of the day of 15 hours you do 20 minutes of chores. Now, at some point, the kid's going to have to say yes, right? I mean, they're not going to be completely unreasonable. and No, never any chores, no matter what. Now, they can, of course, choose to reject chores, right? In which case, you can choose to reject playing with them, right? In the same way that I can choose not to do the TPS reports, and the company can choose not to pay me, right? I mean, that's... These are consequences, not... It's not violent to fire someone if they're not doing a good job. You can't fire your kids, of course, but you can refuse to play with them. Because, you know, I would say something like, okay, well, if you choose not to do any chores, I have to do more chores. That annoys me, and that's unfair, and that's an imposition upon me. And that means me makes me not want to play with you. So, fine, okay, you don't want to do chores. I will clear the kitchen, And uh, I'm not going to pay you an allowance because I'm not going to give you money if you're not going to do any work. Because if I give you money for no work, all I'm training you to do is a Bernie Sanders supporter. I don't want to be an extra in the zombie movie of Bernie Sanders uh, rallies. So, you know, you don't have to do it. I'm going to force you to do it. But there are consequences. The consequences are I'm going to be annoyed with you. I'm not going to feel as positively inclined towards you because you're being selfish and unreasonable. It's a reasonable thing to say, right? If somebody's not willing to do any chores at the age of 12, that's that's just putting the work on you rather than stepping up and doing something decent. Nobody's saying go get a job and pay half the bills in the ha- family. But, you know, bring some damn plates from the table to the kitchen is not an unreasonable thing to say. And if they don't want to do it, fine. Okay. Freedom for your children is freedom for you. If they're free to not help out, you're free to not interact with them. And hopefully interacting with you is a positive enough experience that that will mean something to them. Right. And uh, and to be honest, right. Like You know, I can hear in your voice, there's frustration with your kids not stepping up and doing chores or helping out around the house. So be honest with that. Say, look, this is a negative emotional experience for me. The fact that you guys aren't helping up puts a lot more work on me. And it takes away playtime because I don't feel like playing with you guys. It's not like I've just done an hour of chores that you guys should have done that I don't want to do. Now let's play Monopoly. It's like, I don't feel like it. I don't feel happy about it. I'm upset about it. And I don't like that you're this way. And and you talk about it, right? You don't lecture them and harangue them and make them feel bad. You say, okay, well, what is your theory? At what age do you think you should start doing chores? Do you think you should ever start doing chores? What's your theory? What is your approach? And uh, having these conversations is is really important. And showing appreciation when they do the chores uh, and so on is important as well. Good TPS report. Thank you very much. I'll file it under. (sighs) Right? So you can... um, uh, you can choose not to play with them. I mean, obviously, you got to feed them, right? I mean, you, you drive them to school or whatever is is going on in your household. But, um, you know, if somebody is annoying to me, I don't want to interact with them uh, at that time. And being honest and having integrity to that so that they see the emotional impact that their decisions have on other people and on the quality of life of other people. Now, hopefully, you've been good, being a good enough parent, and I'm sure you have, that... Making you unhappy, they care about that. I mean, if they don't care about making you unhappy, you got to rewind and start somewhere a much earlier. But I'm going to assume that you being justly unhappy with them being kind of selfish is something that bothers them, and it's a sort of a negative experience for them. Like if you've just won the lottery and you want to get fired, well, <laughs> you know, fire me so I can you know, get a severance package or whatever, right? So um, being honest about your negative experiences. Based upon their behavior is really important. And it teaches them that their decisions uh, have impacts on other people. Uh, and don't shield them from the reality that actions have emotional consequences. Emotional consequences for other people. Um, and and you, you can point out things that you've done for them. You know, like, I mean, you, you could say, look, I mean, if I went to, like, when we went to Florida... I wouldn't be going to Disney World if I didn't have kids. Now, I didn't hate Disney World and I was, it was fun to be there, but I wouldn't have done that if I didn't have kids because then I'd just be some creepy guy <laughs> in Disney World for no discernible reason. And um, But pointing out that you do things for them that is more for their benefit than yours is important. Like once you've made the, quote, sacrifices for your children, when they get older, you can legitimately demand those sacrifices back. And they can't really give you a logical reason as to why that shouldn't be reversible right whatever you do is universal is universalizable when they get old enough right and if they make a deal with you and then break a deal with you right i mean my daughter does this occasionally like she'll have some sweet thing and and i'll say oh can i have a bite and she's like "Mm, no (laughs) and i'm like okay no problem i appreciate that so now we don't have to share anything we get that's sweet Right, it's Because like, you take their behavior and you universalize it. Okay, so that, that, you know what? And I said, actually, that's really that's a, that's a good thing. And she's like, why is that a good thing? I said, well, maybe I'm getting something sweet uh, and um, I don't know, then don't have to share it with you. And, and then she's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> and so you, you take their behavior and you universalize it. And you say, okay, well, if we can break deals with each other, then I don't have to keep my promises to you. Okay, if you don't want to share a little bite of something you've got that's sweet, that looks tasty to me, that's fine. I'm not going to get mad at you. But the consequence is I no longer feel bound to share things that I get that might be tasty to you, right? And then you can, I don't know, <laughs> you don't have to be petty. You go out and order some ice cream the size of a small planet and <laughs> dunk your whole head in it and say, oh, I don't think if I can finish this, but I'm going to throw it out anyway because I'm not going to share it, right? But, but universalize what they're doing, right? So if, if your daughter doesn't want to do any chores, then she, the basic principle is, okay, we don't have to do things that are nice and helpful to other people. That's right. They don't get to have their preferences that are not universalized, right? The preferences must be universalized because that's teaching them empathy and basic philosophy, right? So if she says, well, I know I agreed to do this chore, but I'm just not going to do it. I don't feel like it or whatever, right? With an eye roll of specific ability of teenage girls. It's like, okay. Okay, then there are consequences. The consequence is that I'm no longer bound, right? I refuse, as I've said before, I refuse to have standards higher than the people I'm dealing with. So if you make promises to me, or you make commitments to me, my daughter, and you break those commitments to me and you feel fine with that, fine. Then you understand that this is eroding my desire and willingness to keep my deals with you. That is the consequence. It's not a punishment, it's a reality that I'm not gonna sit here and slave away and keep all my promises to you. If you don't keep your promises to me, right? And that's, you know, I, when explaining this to my daughter and she's not a big problem this way, it's just right in explaining this to my daughter, I say, okay, let's say, uh, do you remember when we were in the mall and there was some gumball machine and we put a quarter in and the gumball machine didn't spit out the money? Did we think that was a good deal? No, because we put the quarter in and we were going to watch this gumball. She didn't even eat them; she just collected them. Watch this gumball sort of bounce down this little rolly thing, this counter thing. Dum 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 dum. Makes this annoying, so It's half music that uh, I'm sure has been sampled by Kanye West. But anyway, um, so I said, you know, we we put the quarter in and we didn't get it out. The, the machine didn't keep its part of the deal. Did we want to put more money into that? And she said, no. I said, that's it exactly. We put the quarter in, we didn't get the gumball, we didn't want to put in another quarter. Because the machine didn't keep its part of the deal, so we didn't want to put any more money in. When people don't keep their deals, you stop wanting to give them stuff, you stop wanting to be helpful. And I want her to know that on the receiving end so that she's never exploited in her life on the other end, right? I want when, if other people don't keep their word to her, I want her to feel strong enough to say, I'm not putting another quarter in because you didn't give me a gumball. The deal was put the quarter in, and get a gumball. Don't get the gumball. Don't get the quarter. Right. And, and just having that conversation is you can get to some really deep and fantastic places. And I, and I also say to her, listen, it's perfectly, yeah, I would say to my, my daughter, if she was 12, I'd say, it is perfectly understandable that you want me to do your chores. Like, I totally get that. When I was your age, and even now, I want, I'd love it if other people could sit on the bike machine for 40 minutes. <laughs> that would be excellent, you know? It's really not that exciting. Um, it's perfectly natural, and it's perfectly healthy, and I respect you for trying, right? Because, you know, if you just kind of, okay, I'll do the chores, and it's going to be fine. Like, it, you, 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 that would not be right. <laughs> you know, you always got to try, always got to try and weasel things out weasel out from things. That, that's part of human progress. I don't want to get up and change the channel. I'm just going to invent a channel changer. Good job, you know. I don't want to walk across town to talk to someone. I'm going to invent the phone. Laziness is a jetpack for ingenuity. And it's wonderful. Uh, like you'll see these Rube Goldberg machines where six million things happen and then an egg gets broken. I mean, <laughs> But I love this. That the fact that you want to not do your chores. That's why we. That's why there's a dishwasher. That's why there's air conditioning. That's why uh, there are houses because you don't want to hold up an umbrella all night while you're reading a book. Right? That's why we have roofs. So the fact that she wants to weasel out, I respect it. It's perfectly natural. I absolutely can't allow it to happen in our relationship because, because I care. If you, if people, if kids in particular get, you know, like that, you say. I really want to look forward to my time with you. I really want to look forward to playing with you. I really want to look forward to us having fun together. This interferes with that. I'm going to fiercely try and get you to do your chores so that I can selfishly get to continue enjoying playing with you. That's what's in it for me. I don't want things that interfere with my happiness and joy and spending time with you. And you not doing your chores and you dragging your feet and it being difficult every single time, right? Um, That is interfering with my pleasure, in parenting. And I don't want anything to interfere with my pleasure with parenting because I didn't pay my parent to nag and have a bad time and get resentful. That's that's a bad deal all around. Bad deal for you, bad deal for me. So I'm going to work fiercely to guard our fun. And if there's things that you're doing that are interfering with our fun, I'm going to tell you. And if there's things that I'm doing that are interfering with our fun, I want you to tell me too. But uh, so you just have these Conversations with kids, and you can get to very deep places, very productive places to recognize it's perfectly natural for your daughter to not want to do her chores. And it's perfectly natural for you to want to just not have this conflict because you don't know how it's going to go or what's going to happen and could it escalate and could it get worse. Well, just I'll take these plates for the moment, right? I understand it's perfectly natural for you to have those feelings too. Just like it's perfectly natural to want chocolate rather than broccoli, you just can't live on chocolate. (laughs) It's not good for you, right? So, um, Make sure that you know that it's not a dominance thing. It's not like, well, I told you to do this, and if you're not doing it, that's an affront to my authority, and I'm going to make sure that you do this, right? That, that's People don't respond to exhibitions of dominance uh, in general, right? Certainly not the way that you've raised your kids, I'm sure. But delving into what's going on at a very deep level is important, And, you know, appeal to universality as well, which is something like this. It's like, okay, well, if I follow your rule, then I'm never going to do anything I don't want to, which means I don't feel like going to work some days. So I won't go to work some days. I'll get fired and we'll end up living in a cardboard box down by the river. Right. So if I take your approach of not ever wanting to do things I don't want to do, clearly things will go pretty badly for the family. And you'll be you'll be wishing that you had some plates to take to the kitchen, which we don't have either plates or a kitchen anymore, right? So uh, just help her understand that she's relying on other people doing things they don't want to do so that she cannot do things that she doesn't want to do. And that puts her outside the ring of consistency, right? And, and, you know, I wouldn't use this example directly, but it's kind of like a thief. A thief requires that other people make stuff rather than steal stuff because if if there's only thieves in the world nobody will make anything there's nothing to steal everyone starves to death right so the thief requires that somebody make whatever it is he's going to steal and so the thief is kind of outside the universality of property rights i want you to imagine you have property rights so that i can violate your property rights i want to violate your property rights at the same time that i want to keep what i've stolen that's now my property because if some thief stole it from me i'd be in some caper movie and i'd be really upset And i have to, I don't know, chase you with a 1960s suit on my back. So have her understand the depth to which this is foundational, right? And also, you know, you can point out, you know, she's 12, right? Smart enough to figure this stuff out. She's saying, I would say to her too, look, if you end up having a life where you don't do things that you don't want to do, you're going to have to surround yourself with hypocrites, with other people who will do a whole bunch of stuff that that they don't want to do so that you can, right? I mean, if you don't take the dishes, I have to take the dishes. I don't want to take the dishes any more than you do. So you don't have to do anything that you want to do. And therefore I have to do more of what I don't want to do. Now, if I let you get away with that, I would be training you to be around spineless people who are codependent and frightened of rejection to the point where they just weasel up and cozy up to people and do all this other stuff just to have them around in their life. You don't want to spend your life surrounded by low rat Byzantine vermin like that. That's a pretty gross group of people. But those are the people you'll actually have to spend time with if you end up in this pattern of life of not wanting to do things you don't want to do. You're going to have a whole bunch of people out there like – you know, like some ancient emperor being carried by six uh, swarthy guys uh, with James Dornan and Butts, um, they're gonna have, people are going to have to carry you around and you're going to end up with people who don't have integrity and can't stand up for themselves. And that's going to be a pretty gross existence for you to be in. And also, you know, if you get older and when you get older, you're going to get married and all that. You know, I mean, I, it sounds gross when you're 12, of course, right? But, but how I behave is not going to be completely unrelated to how your husband is going to behave, because, you know, I'm the guy you see around the house and all that. And if you end up not lifting a finger and having, therefore, other people have to work themselves to the bone around you, what kind of husband are you going to get? You're going to get some weaselly, spineless, codependent husband who's just willing to sweep up and scatter rose petals in front of you and sweep any uncomfortable dust behind you. And that kind of person is going to drive you completely insane after a while, because you need someone who's going to stand up for what they believe in who's going to confront you if you're acting badly just as i want you to confront me if i'm acting badly you want somebody who's going to have that give and take that frisson that you know solid edges where you end and and they begin and so on so that for a whole bunch of reasons you know it's not about the plates and and everyone kind of gets that deep down that with kids and chores it's not about the plates because you know for the most part You know, kids carrying these wobbly plates. It's like, yeah, well, maybe you'll do a chore. Maybe we'll just go buy new plates after sweeping up the remnants of the old ones. Not very efficient to have kids do chores at the beginning, but it is important. Now, my daughter has a series of chores; she's got to do them. I mean, she and there's times you have to be completely inflexible, right? There are times where I know I got something to do, but I just don't. I won't do it for whatever reason for a day or two if it's if it can be postponed. But she's got to do the stuff, right? And she's like, "Well, I don't want to." I'm like, "Yeah." I get that, and I respect you for trying not to. But you got to, because uh, that's life. You know, my, my job is to get you ready for adulthood. And adulthood, believe it or not, there's things you don't want to do, right? And, um, you know, I got to do my books. I got to do my taxes. I need to payroll. I got to pay my bills. And, you know, this is not like, oh, it's a climax of male orgasmic joy to write a check to the hydro company. You know, when we're incredibly lucky, I said, you know, we're, we're incredibly lucky, because we get to do a lot more fun stuff than just about anybody in history has ever gotten to do. And, um, oh, yeah, Mike's like, yeah, it's like, do I love doing show introductions? We've got this new thing where we introduce the show. And I'm like, oh, it's already packed away. What callers did we have? How drunk was I? How much beer do I need to have at 8 o'clock in the morning to re? I don't never do a show drunk. Oh, yeah, and, and for years I've been promising Mike promo photos, but we just can't book the Anaconda. Um, uh, and, of course, the Anaconda is in obviously completely intimidated by my masculine features but um yeah i mean there's there's things that that you got to do you don't want to do them you got to do them and uh you know i talked about this with regards to the show you know i mean you know we do shows and then we do post-production shows fun post-production not quite so much fun (laughs) and uh, yet you know without the post-production um we don't have a show so, I mean, just, you know, go to Bill Whittle's channel. I mean, he's got post-production that makes me spontaneously eject drool onto my monitor, which means i got to get a new monitor. And, um, yeah, Mike, I'll get the photos done. I'm just waiting for my scar to heal. It's coming along. And, um, and for my, my skin to stop aging. Uh, and three more spots, I'm good to go. But, um, so that is, um, that, is the, uh, that is the challenge in life. Got to do things you don't want to do kind of do things you don't want to do and you know not not helping your kids prepare for that with emotionally authentic consequences um, is uh, not helping them uh, in in the long run sorry sorry for that long speech my friend does that sort of give any any useful approaches that, that you might be able to use
4: oh yes it's actually very accurate and I'm, I'm using the same strategy but uh, the problem is um, um, I'm not alone, and if you have a uh, very very loving mom at home, so call it um, helicopter mom. Uh, so it, it doesn't work well because uh, women they they are so um, emotional in a positive sense. They so caring and so so much giving that they completely disobey the rules of accountability and they just do whatever child's needs and um, it develops in the direction that um, the children have the expectation that everything is done for them just by definition or some other kid could do the chores so why me and this uh, mental pattern um, just gets embedded in the brain I think and all right so I, I gotta
0: stop you there because you're talking about this helicopter parenting as some sort of um love yes because yeah, it's th- no it's not it's Ye- not you're right but
4: But women understand it so.
0: Okay, well, so what? I mean, men have particular understanding to the world that women criticize, and rightly so. So, you know, I'm sure that your wife can handle it if you criticize something. Um, uh, We'll put this link in the... uh, I'll just read a little bit here. Um, So this is from the Washington Post. The the title of the essay is... uh, Former Stanford dean explains why helicopter parenting is ruining a generation of children. Uh, Julie Lithgott-Hames noticed a disturbing trend. During her decade as dean of freshmen at Stanford University, incoming students were brilliant and accomplished and virtually flawless on paper. But with each year, more of them seemed incapable of taking care of themselves. At the same time, parents were becoming more and more involved in their children's lives. They talked to their children multiple times a day and swooped in to personally intervene whenever something difficult happened. From her former position at one of the world's most prestigious schools, Lithcott-Hames came to believe that mothers and fathers in affluent communities have been hobbling their children by trying so hard to make sure they succeed and by working so diligently to protect them from disappointment, failure, and hardship. Such, quote, overhelping might assist children in developing impressive resumes for college admission, but it also robs them of the chance to learn who they are, what they love, and how to navigate the world. And she's got a book called How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kids, Your Kid for Success. And I, I have not read the book. I just, just wanted to mention this article. She wrote, We want so badly to help them by shepherding them from milestone to milestone and by shielding them from failure and pain. But overhelping causes harm. It can leave young adults without the strengths of skill, will, and character that are needed to know themselves and to craft a life. And there is a um uh, she, she cites reams of statistics on the rise of depression and other mental and emotional health problems among the nation's young people. Uh, she has seen the effects up close. Uh, Lithcott-Hames lives in Palo Alto, California, a community that, following a string of suicides in the past year, has undertaken a period of soul-searching about what parents can do to stem the pressure that young children face. And um, if you say to your child, like let's say your child wants to become uh, a, a dancer, Well, if you say, okay, I'll go take lessons for you, is that going to help her? No. No. She's got to take the lessons. She's got to learn the skills. She's got to be able to do it. And so is your wife, does your wife say, or does your wife encourage your daughter to not do her chores? Does she say, oh, I'll do it, Uh, go play?
4: Sometimes, probably, or she just thinks uh, she can do it much quicker and better, and it's wasting time to to, to talk to children.
0: Uh, is, uh, is your wife better at math than your daughter is? Yes. So clearly then your wife should do your daughter's homework, because she can do it much more quickly than your daughter can and much more efficiently, right? Oh, they're doing it together. What? Yes. No no no. The homework is for your daughter. No. Your wife is doing your daughter's homework with her? Yes. Oh. <laughs> oh my god.
4: But it's actually it's requirement because um the public schools uh, they do not transfer enough knowledge uh, and their children they not um they not um of course, if you're very intelligent, you 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 can manage it. But uh, on the average, the teachers they assume that the parents um, teach the children some. Of course, it's an in, unofficial,
0: but um, wait. So open, they're assuming a, that the uh, they're assuming that the the parent is sitting down doing the homework with the kid. Yes because now have you listened in on this is this is your daughter learning stuff i mean the whole point of helping like you know when your daughter you know when your kids are learning to ride a bike you help them right you help them hold the handlebars you put the training wheels on but the whole point is that you stop after a while so they can do it themselves right like you help them learn how to climb up and down stairs you don't do it when they're 12 right so is, is the point to detach your wife from the homework process and again i mean there's no studies that show that homework's any good i mean that's a whole other educational question but the reality is that if there's a requirement to do work the requirement is for your daughter to do the work not your wife right so i mean is the purpose to stop this at some point i mean i hope relatively soon
4: Oh, there's uh, the, the, always uh, the hope that a uh, child is, is uh, at some time, um, at some age, is uh, developed so much that she can uh, just uh, carry on uh, on herself. But, but you, oh,
0: you find that out by not helping her and seeing if she passes or fails, right?
4: Yes, but if she fails, it's triggering, of course, in public school, education and um, unimaginable pain which is of course what do you mean, uh,
0: unimaginable pain what do you mean she fails a test and she has unimaginable pain
4: no if, he, if she fails uh, the whole year so, so she has to repeat the year she loses uh, her friends and she loses right.
0: and, and because your daughter knows that she'll work hard at not failing
4: um, that's a concept of course
0: No, that's a reality. Yes. Right? I mean, of course she doesn't want to get left behind. You don't want to be the kid shaving in grade seven, right? I mean, well, okay, there were Italian kids in my class, right? But, you know, if there are negative consequences to her not studying, then there'll be negative consequences. Right? Yes. And um, she will learn to study. (laughs) I mean, she'll learn to do. Look, and again, the public school and all this, there's a whole other kind of question. But, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, I studied for a test or I didn't. And if I didn't study for a test, I usually didn't do that well. And if I did study, I would do well, unless it was English, in which case I was reading for fun anyway. It was easy. But um, that's your Anxiety. And the degree to which you allow your anxiety to have you step in and intervene in your daughter's life is the degree to which you are undermining her capacity to have responsibility and succeed in the future. I mean, is this going to go on through college? Uh, No, it's. uh... Do you think the longer it goes on, the easier it will be to transition out of it? Uh,
4: No, I don't think so.
0: Do you think it's better for her to fail now, or better to her, for her to fail in her fourth year of college if she's going to fail? Oh,
4: it would be better to fail now, probably. Right, I think so.
0: Right. Yes. So it's not—it's—it's it's your your anxiety and probably your wife's anxiety. What if she fails the test? Why well, she fails the test? So what? I mean, just—failure just, I mean, is everywhere in life. I've gone through a list of the things that I've screwed up and failed at in my life, and it's. I shouldn't say embarrassingly long. It just means, hey, I did stuff. And a lot of stuff you do doesn't work, right? Um, So the capacity to handle failure is our only chance for success. Because all success involves considerable risk. And anything that people want as a whole has lots of people trying to get it, which means you're competing against the best Everything that is desirable, and not a lot of competition to be a dishwasher, probably a lot of competition to star in a movie, right? Because that's what a lot of people want to do. And so if you want to be a dishwasher, you might be the only person applying for the job. If you want to be the lead in <laughs> World War Z, then you got got Brad Pitt to compete against, who's quite a ferocious competitor when it comes to acting. That's why he's a movie star. And so everything, if you want your children to succeed at anything other than the minimum, the bland average or below average, then they have to damn well get used to failure because every single time you want to do something great, you are more likely to fail than succeed. Every single time you want to do something out of the ordinary, failure is by far your most likely outcome. And You cannot succeed unless you make friends with failure, unless you recognize and accept that you can walk away from failure and still be a great person and still be a valuable person. And in fact, possibly a greater and more valuable person because you are no longer afraid of failure. And so by shielding your daughter from failure, you are shielding her from the capacity to succeed at anything other than the bare minimum in life, in my opinion and 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 the free world, the free market out there, doesn't care if she fails. You're creating an unrealistic environment for her. Now, of course, when she's a baby, well, you you fell down those stairs. Now, of course, you build the you, you put the little gates up there and you make sure that her world is safe, and you childproof the house because she's a baby. You've got to transition out of that though. I mean, she's, she's 12. Which means she's got to start accepting ownership for her life. And it's your anxiety, not hers, that is causing this. You're managing your anxiety. It's got nothing to do with her long-term success. Because you and I both know that her long-term success is going to be contingent on her being able to accept the possibility of failure and work around it. And this doesn't mean that she should fail at all. I'm not saying, you know, have her fail so that she's like, I'm not saying don't push her off a bike so that she learns to to not be afraid of it. But if she falls, then she learns. She falls, then she learns. You know, as I I said to, uh, I've said to people before, I've said to kids before, pain is a teacher. Pain is your body's way of trying to help you. Pain is your body's way of saying. Let's not do that again, (laughs) right? I mean, and, uh, you know, pain is really annoying, and it's really bad, and it's really a negative experience. And the degree to which it's a negative experience is the degree to which your body's trying to help you. Because the more dangerous a thing you've done, and the more you've hurt your body, the more pain you're going to experience. Therefore, the more aversive you're going to be to doing that again. You know, if you go and eat some berry in the woods, and it makes you sick, you don't eat the berries in the woods anymore. At least the ones that look like that. So I'm not saying you want her to fail, but by shielding her from the consequences of her actions or her inactions and by catastrophizing immediately. Like if 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 my wife doesn't help her with her math homework, she'll fail the whole year. Come on. That's not how it works she'll resent it, she'll grudge it, she'll end up doing it herself and maybe she'll fail a test or maybe she won't do very well on a test in which case she'll see that actions have consequences. But she's got to start sailing her own ship at one point and I'm not saying turn her loose to go work in a factory in some Dickensian model but what I'm saying is that it's not her feelings that you guys are concerned about, it's your own feelings that if she fails, it's going to be really upsetting for her. But it's your upset that you're concerned about. You're managing your own feelings rather than what is best for her, in my opinion.
4: Oh yes, it, uh, I think it is um, the last call with uh, Bill Whittle. It was about this um, antifragility and uh, it's probably the strategy.
0: The amygdala needs to be trained in negative stimuli in order to be able to accept risk. And you don't want negative stimuli to suddenly show up in um, her adult life. Like you don't want, like you don't want her negative stimuli, her, her lack of willingness to work hard or her lack of willingness to accept risk and so on. You don't want that to show up when she's 24 and she's moved out. The consequences of failure there are much more significant than the consequences of a failing a math test now, right? So and, and she, she might not fail. She probably won't fail the math test, right? I mean, if you're listening to this show, you're a smart guy, you married a smart woman and you've got smart kids statistically and genetically speaking, that's most likely. So she's not going to, she's not going to fail. She's not going to bomb out of school. She's not going to end up spending the next 10 years in grade seven or eight, right? Um... She needs to be comfortable with failure. Look, I mean, I'm out here on the edge every day, pretty much, you put out a show. I'd love all the shows to do what the European migrant crisis does. Can't do it. If you, if you take that as a standard story, if you're enslavement, what, at three and a half or four million views or whatever, every single one of my other thousands and thousands of podcasts and videos has been a complete and total failure relative to my number one video, right? Yes. And um, so what? It's not like I'm doing shows that I know won't do well. I just do the shows that I think are most interesting and that I'm most passionate about and that we're all most passionate about here. And we put them out. And sometimes a show we work on for a week does 10% of the views of a show we talk about for 10 minutes and I do in 15 minutes, (laughs) right? How am I going to keep doing shows if I'm like, oh man, this show didn't do as many views as my biggest show ever, (laughs) I mean, come on, that, that's, that's not how you're going to get anything done in this life. You know, Freddie Mercury never wrote another Bohemian Rhapsody, but I'm still g- glad that they kept recording, I guess.
4: But let's get to core question. Is this overdoing problem not more important than spanking problem?
0: Why does it matter? Why can't they both be important?
4: Oh, they can, of course.
0: Yeah, you don't have to prioritize one, because it's not an either-or. There's not a logic gate here, right? I mean, it's not an either-or. Um, no, no. You, you don't want to be yelling at and intimidating your children. And you don't want to be hitting your children. But you also don't want to be shielding them from the natural consequences of their actions.
4: Yes, yeah, of course.
0: And listen, read the books. I mean, this is just my thoughts. I don't have the biology behind it and so on. Read, read the books on the experts uh, that um, we develop self-respect through overcoming challenges and the degree to which we are shielded from challenges, we are shielded from self-respect. And we develop these distorted views on what risk is. You know, risk is not, like risk is cancer. Risk is not, I might fail my biweekly test in algebra. You know, that, that's not risk. You know, risk is really standing out for what you believe in despite negative consequences. That's risky. Yeah. I only got a 65 on this. I mean, you know, it's, it puts th- some things in perspective. Of course, when you're 12, things are important and all that. But the fact that she wants to stay with her friends and all of that, oh, explain to her. You know, we're going to give you some, you know, you always want some freedom. We're going to catch you some back freedom. Your daughter's not going to like it. Your wife's not going to like it. And maybe you won't like it either. But so what? You're showing her it's important to do things you don't want to do, even if what you don't want to do is stop helping. But in the long run, in the long run, um, she won't even know how appreciative she is because she won't know what the alternative would have been. Just mull it over. That's all. All right. Will you keep us posted about how it goes if you decide to make any decisions in this area? I'd like to get some feedback on on how it goes, no matter what you Oh, yes. Decisions
4: are made. We can see how it's going to, to, to work in practice.
0: All right. got to move on to the last caller because mm-hmm. uh, I'm a little lower on energy than I'd like to be today, which is no problem. But uh, I'm going to move on to the next caller, last caller. But thanks so much for your call, man. And, and please do uh, try and keep us uh, uh, keep us posted. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. So all my very best to you and your family as well. Okay. Bye.
1: All right. Well, up next is Josh. Josh wrote in and said, I've recently finished reading the novel The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. The book left me pondering the overlap and or comparability of revenge with virtue. Can one seek to punish evil or seek revenge against someone who has done evil to them without seeking to advance virtue and still be good? Is the act of revenge or seeking retribution good, bad, or simply an aesthetic preference? What of those who are harmed along the way? Is it permissible for people to be collateral damage in the promotion of virtue, but not revenge? That's from
0: Josh. All right. Is this something because of the book or something that are you plotting vengeance against the wrongdoer in general? Or is this just because it came out of the book?
5: Um, actually, yeah, there is something in my personal life. Yeah. With uh, that is that uh, I'll just give you the extreme quick run through and then you have more questions. I'll go into it. I worked for a company um, for a while, and uh, the individual that I worked for had some very, very unsavory business practices. So, and did a number of things wrong to myself and other people. And since then, I've started my own business. And of course, I just want to be more financially independent for myself. But as well, I would really, really love to completely put him out of business. And right. you know, kind of wreck what he did, what he's built. So, you know, it's not like I'm sitting here thinking, oh, well, how can I burn his trucks and, you know, do it that way? But, you know, at the same time, too, yes, there is a revenge component to that. But then I also began thinking about those things on a grander, larger scale, you know, um, because ultimately, when I read the book, the main thing that I kind of saw is, is, and I I sent an email on this, too, that it just kind of seems like, a lot of the evil is committed in the world. I, I just noticed it was from greed. But then I got looking up as to what the uh, definition of greed was, and I just saw it as a lot of subjective nonsense. So I kind of came up with my own definition on it, and I don't know if it holds water or not philosophically, but I looked at it as it was with the willingness to break um, ethical standards in the pursuit or attempt to acquire something that's unearned. So I just don't know is that is revenge permissible against greed or other immorality?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, greed is one of these words that is, is bendy. (laughs) It's, it's a yoga word. It's very flexible. Um, so revenge and virtue is a, a great question. Um, so there's the current world and the world that is to be, I, I don't, Like to spend too much time trying to figure out how to achieve justice in the world. That is, that's like trying to use a rotary dial to make a cell phone call. And um, so in in the world to be in the future, um, the quest, so in an immediate sense, let's say you come home and you catch a robber who just killed your family, right? And you shoot him. would you put someone like that in jail?
5: Would I put someone like that in jail? Are we pretending this is a situation where I'm some sort of judge or have the authority to do something of that nature?
0: No, it doesn't like, would you approve of that person going to jail? It doesn't matter whether you do it. I mean, what would your moral opinion be? Guy comes home, a robber's just killed his family, shoots the robber.
5: Okay, um, can I give you my simple answer and then my philosophical answer? I, I view jail as cruel and unusual punishment. So I wouldn't do that against anyone. But I mean, from a moral standpoint... Would you support some sanction against him? Yeah, I wouldn't hold the person accountable for, for, you know, shooting somebody for doing something like that, no.
0: Okay, so that's vengeance.
5: Yeah. Right. Yeah, because we could sit here and argue and say that maybe he could have subdued him and brought him to justice. But no, I mean, yeah, it is taking vengeance of, of that, yeah. You're killing right. the assuming assuming
0: you're... the guy is not, like you could say, he was waving a gun around. Assuming it wasn't immediate self-defense, if you shoot a guy who's just shot your family or killed your family, mm-hmm. is that, well, so if, if, and I'll keep my own opinions out of this for the moment. But if you're comfortable with that, then you're comfortable with vengeance, because that's a revenge killing, right? You killed my family, I'll kill you, right? That's a revenge killing. Now, the degree to which you stretch that out over time is somewhat less important. Right, so let's say he does it a week later, <laughs> right? You know, the old revenge is the dish best served cold. Well, then there's a time element involved in that. If you're comfortable with it in the moment, but you're not comfortable with it further down the road, then you have an expiration date for vengeance, which is, you know, a bit of a, a, bit of a challenge. Now, all, all attempts at justice in a free society, in a good society, and so on, have some degree of retribution involved.
5: Uh-huh.
0: Right? So let's say, well, you, you go shoot the guy who killed your family, but you call the freedom cops or the libertopia brigade or whatever, and you initiate some course of action where this guy ends up receiving sanctions uh, until he does something to whatever, right the wrong as best he can or whatever, right? So if you, is, there some, is there to some degree vengeance uh, in wishing those who've done you wrong to suffer? Uh, In response, hard to say, right? I mean, there's some... It's not just, well, the abstract principle of justice has been served and society has been protected. We are still apes without excess body hair. And uh, retaliation, I think, is part of a system uh, of justice. But, sorry, go ahead.
5: I was thinking more UPB compliant revenge, if that makes sense. Because in the book of The Count of Monte Cristo... He never, like, goes out and just, you know, starts slitting people's throats and, you know, setting fire to their villages and that. It was all more he just kind of ruined their lives. So, like, let's just say, would this be appropriate for, I've just come and this individual has just killed my family. And as opposed to gunning him down like a dog on the spot, you know, we do use the, quote, unquote, um, you know, libertopia police in that. And at which point I'm able to get everybody in all society to know exactly who this individual is. And his sentence is that absolutely no one will help him in any way, shape, or form. And he's constantly having to be on the run. And we all watch him slowly starve to death. Um, Well,
0: so hang on. So So what you're talking about is, hang on, hang on. What you're talking about is speaking the truth in the hopes of provoking ostracism, right?
5: Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: Okay. That's perfectly just, I think.
5: Or maybe then, hmm. yeah, okay, well done, yeah. I I mean, you're you're not initiating
0: the use of force or fraud. You're speaking the truth, and you are hoping to provoke ostracism. Now, this, of course, requires that society hold similar moral viewpoints than than you do, right? Yes,
5: yes.
0: Right, so um, if you look at how the left tried to take down Joseph McCarthy, who was identifying a bunch of Soviet spies at the higher end of the State Department, but they attempted to provoke ostracism and to paint him in such a negative light that... um, People just rejected him out of hand, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, if, but if you're telling the truth about someone, and that results in people not wanting to associate with them, well, mm-hmm. well that's, you're telling the truth, and you're not initiating the use of force, so I don't see how that could be considered immoral, an immoral action.
5: So, and even if it results in that individual's death, well, that's just a byproduct of truth and virtue being exercised in society in a nonviolent
0: way. Well, see, the causality becomes a bit tricky, right? Mm
3: -hmm.
0: When you say it results in his death, Mm -hmm. well, um, I don't know that that would be particularly causally explainable, right? So if some guy killed your family and, and you told the truth and nobody wanted to have anything to do with him and then he starved to death... Actually, it would be him killing your family that set that in motion, not you telling the truth right
5: that that is very true yeah
0: right so so I wouldn't say that it's you telling the truth that you know <laughs> caused him to whatever right <laughs> yeah so I, I mean just keep keep the moral agency where the moral agency actually is. Mm-hmm. I think I mean, you just don't you know, some, pick some random guy and try and destroy his life right so.
5: yeah, yeah yeah well and and then I guess we have to say is at uh, which point is, is, is as long as you're doing that, let's just say for example. I, this is going to be a completely ridiculous example, but it just came to my mind. You see the guy kick the puppy, but through your you you're you're the host of some unbelievably influential uh, internet radio podcast that eventually gets everybody to listen to what you say, and through your uh, influence, you're able to get everybody to ostracize an individual over kicking a puppy. I realize it's completely ridiculous, but where does um, where does that draw the line on that? Because, I mean, we, we, of course, would sit here and say, well, that's just justice. No, no, but you see, murderer, no, no, but,
0: but, but, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh-huh. Like, let's say uh, Michael Brown, right, the the, the big um, the big young African-American fellow uh-huh. who strong-armed this cigar box out of this uh, shop owner's store, uh-huh. right? Well, the shop owner called the cops, apparently, or one of the customers, so I can't remember the exact story, but the cops were called over this shoplifting. Now, that set events in motion that resulted in Michael Brown's being shot to death, right? Right? I mean, because if the cops hadn't been called, then Wilson wouldn't have confronted Michael Brown, who was walking down the middle of the road with a cigar case under his hand when he just Right near the yeah, store, he where did, this he did order
5: him to get out of the street, but it's more than lengthy. No, 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 hang on, hang on. Hang on. Forget on forget, I don't yeah, want yeah, to get into the details to of that, on but a whole private. presentation yeah, of
0: that. Yeah. But what I'm saying yeah. is that the shop owner or whoever it was in the store who made the call to the cops about the robbery, mm-hmm. were they responsible for Michael Brown's death?
5: No, Michael Brown was responsible for Michael Brown's death because of the choices that he made. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Right, so that that, that's perfect. important. The, the wrongdoer is responsible for the choices that he makes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And somebody who's telling the truth about a wrongdoer is not causal. But the wrongdoer himself is causal. Yeah, I guess too. If some guy's a convicted rapist, mm-hmm. and he wants to ask a, a, a girl you know out or your sister, and you say to your sister, this guy's a convicted rapist. Is it your fault she's not going out with him?
5: No. Yeah, again, yeah. 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 That's a good That's point,
0: not... yeah. Right,
5: it's I mean... just, uh, Yeah. It's just the other thing that really got me thinking about this, too, is that the number of people that call into the show and that uh, from my generation, the uh, millennials, who seem to have a lot of hostility and anger towards the boomers for a very good reason. With me, I actually don't really have too much hatred for the boomers. For me, it comes... Uh, the generation that came before the greatest generation I don't know what that would be called but at the turn of the last century I I kind of a problem saying I've seething hatred for that generation but they're all in the grave now and that's beyond any retribution
0: oh you mean the uh, the people who fought what what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation the people who fought in Second World War grew up in the depression that kind of stuff
5: no, no, no. Prior to them,
0: uh, the turn of the century. Uh, oh, sorry, turn America. of the century. Oh, so you mean the, the people who were sort of let, let the whole progressive movement go on yeah, and who let central Socialists. banking be founded and didn't, didn't yes. fight uh, the growth of World War I and then let uh, Versailles get implemented and then uh, let the government become semi-fascistic during the Great Depression and uh, didn't uh, point out or, or fight against the rise of Hitler. You mean that sort of generation?
5: Yes, because the whole yeah. thing as I look at them is that they had just escaped, you know, the history of tyranny oppression for so long and then slowly but surely it was creeping back. That was the time you could have made a hard stop. By the time the boomers came around, there was already such bribery and distortion, religion was gone. But those were supposed to be people of oh, moral man.
0: character. <laughs> oh, dear. oh dear. Hang on, hang on, hang on.
5: <laughs> oh I'm not I'm not taking hey, Wait! wait, wait, wait. wait.
0: Okay. Hey, okay. Hey, okay, hey, okay. Hey, 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 hey. okay. I just heard you throw open your mouth. <laughs> no, no, just, just you know, just a, a a mild pushback. If you'll be so very kind, just to indulge me. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, the, the generation that you're talking about, they were all raised in government schools. Because right, the government education system, 1870s, 1880s, and so on, right? A generation and a half, maybe even before these kids came of age, right? So they were raised in government schools. Secondly, of course, they did not have access to any kind of form of mass communication that is available, certainly now, but even in the 60s and 70s and 80s. With television, newspapers, magazines, and so on, there was a much greater capacity to join public discourse and influence events. Uh, so... Um, you could go even further back and say, well, for me, the big problem is the 1850s when, you know, they could have uh, prevented the rise of public schools and so on. But again, concentrated well, there, benefits well, and dispersed you, you classes and so on. You can't
5: say after the 1850s, there was a big, giant civil war. I mean, now, sure, it was fought on both sides, extremely immoral grounds. But the point was is that those people were willing to stand up and fight. And you can say that the people who were more or less willing to stand up and fight, that gene was kind of killed off in the biggest bloodbath America had ever seen. And then they just kind of became a little more docile afterwards. So.
0: Right. Now, but he- here's the challenge is that if you're going to start taking personal responsibility away from people mm-hmm. because of circumstances or genetics or whatever, right, you're going to have a tough time with that saying, well, this generation has more moral responsibility, this generation has less moral responsibility. My particular approach, and take it for what it's worth, but my particular approach is I only compare people to their stated ideals. That, that's all. All I care about is I don't care about, well, was there this genetics or that genetics or was there this pattern or that pattern or were they exposed to this, that, or the other? All I care about is what did they say and what did they do? And the greater the gap between their stated ideals and their actual actions is their degree of moral responsibility. Right? So the '60s generation with their pacifism and their sort of make love, not war kind of thing, is like, okay, so you guys don't like using force to solve problems. So what's with the socialist welfare state, right? Or the people, yeah. like they say, well, we, we brought the welfare state in to help the poor. And then they just... Never circle back to see if it's actually working, right? Oh, we yeah. really care about helping the poor, or oh, we're all about helping the poor. Okay, is spending a trillion dollars a year helping the poor? No, okay, yeah. revisit it then, you bastards, <laughs> right? <laughs> circle think back, think you know.
5: Our political power, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, whatever it is, right? So, uh, you know, I whether to what degree people have moral response, I like. I can't. I don't have soul spy into. I don't have the soul size. The soul spy spell into other people's souls. I don't know the degree All to right. which you know. Well, this person has 59.4% moral responsibility. On the other hand, this generation had 63.2, so clearly there are a few percentage points more. I, I have no idea. Yeah. No yeah. idea. All I care about uh-huh. is people who say, well, I don't think we should use violence to solve social problems. Well, you know taxation is forced. La, la, la. Like then, okay, moral responsibility. You don't have moral responsibility until you hear the argument because uh-huh. there's not many people who can come up with original moral arguments. So people don't have moral responsibility until they hear the moral argument. Once they hear the moral argument, they have moral responsibility, which is why people love to sit in an echo chamber and be told over and over again the things they already believe, because that way they don't accumulate an excess of moral responsibility or any moral responsibility. It's why the left goes to the leftist outlets and the right goes to the rightist outlets and so on, because if they hear arguments counter to their perceptions. If people on the right here leftist criticisms of foreign policy, if people on the left here rightist criticisms of domestic policy, then their minds open and they expand and so on. And you can see this in my The Truth About Bernie Sanders video where a bunch of socialists come in and just believe that taking a big giant snark dump on active intelligence does anything other than electrocute their ass. It <laughs> doesn't do any harm to the active intelligence, it just makes them look like complete idiots for the most part. It, it um,
5: is frightening because um, with with, with that definition that um, I gave you for greed, because I wanted to see if that was uh, philosophically sound, I tried putting that out on social media, just to try and get some pushback. And, of course, the thing I got the most is is that ethics are subjective, so therefore it's even more insane. And I said, well, let's just go ahead. I'm not going to get into that argument right now about whether ethics are or are not subjective, because that's just going to be a round robin. You're never able to nail those people down with so what i said is
0: no but maybe I you put, could nail them up sorry just kidding <laughs>
5: <laughs> but i just said it as well let's just go ahead and say that you know individual ethics whatever that is is that let's just say i say i my ethical standard is, is that i give 10% of my earnings to charity that is my ethical standard well now we have something objective to measure my actions against so if i'm doing not doing that now you could say that i'm greedy so it's it's even if ethics are subjective, this is something objective we can measure. No, no, no,
0: no, no, that's not it. Well, why not? Well, hang on a sec. But I always find it funny too. people that ethics are subjective. It's like, you know you're an anarchist now, right? <laughs> like, the I moment you you, If ethics are objective, then we need universal non-aggression principle, which makes you an anarchist. If ethics are subjective, then the government is a giant jazz fascist making sure that everyone likes jazz when jazz is a subjective taste. We but are the I international mean, ministry of you must eat ice cream and like it or we'll throw you in prison. It's like, I don't think ice cream fascism or jazz fascism really makes a lot of sense to people. But if ethics are subjective, you can't have a state with laws because laws are about the imposition of moral standards or ethical standards or power standards upon other people. So the the, 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 the result of ethics argument? being subjective is let's have an anarchic society. And yet they never ever want to say that.
5: Are you ready for the powerful counter argument? Yeah. Ugh, Rhodes.
0: <laughs> the Afro counter argument is uh, racist, fascist. Yeah. Hey, are you white? You're yeah. wrong by definition. <laughs> white ain't right, yeah.
5: brother. Yeah. yeah. But it's just one of those things of, like as you're reading that, you just look at a man who had it in that. I'm sorry, I'm going back to the book now. You look at a man who had his life completely destroyed by, I think, what we can describe as what the state is comprised of, assholes around him. And as a result, he went out and took vengeance. Now, Alexander Dumas in the book was using a lot of trying to use the divine uh, conduit, that that's all that the account of Monte Cristo was, was, you know, the conduit of God's wrath against evildoers. So I didn't really get a whole lot of moral clarity in uh, the idea of revenge from that, but it did just leave me pondering it. So I guess kind of what we've come to the conclusion of is is that as long as you stick within the confines of UPB and the person has actually done something immoral, it's pretty much open game?
0: Well, no, here's the thing, right? I mean, if you decide to act on vengeance, Mm -hmm. you are taking on a significant risk. Right? And the significant risk is that You know, some guy pushes you in the mud. So then you trip him up when he's carrying a tray of food. So then he pushes you down the stairs. So then you drive over his foot, right? This escalation aspect of the Hatfield of Nicoys, right? Shooting across the Tennessee woods or whatever. This escalation capacity for vengeance is significantly destabilizing and significantly risky.
5: Well, isn't that just personal preference,
0: though? No. No, no, well, because, I mean, <laughs> no, no, I mean if, you, you, if you two people live in the woods, they go fight it all they want, I guess, right? Who cares, right? But there is um, this collateral damage. You might fall down the stairs, land on someone, you know, whatever it is, right? That this could be, right? So this capacity for escalation is a challenge. And one of the things that a sort of centralized justice system is supposed to do is take the individual escalation aspect out of it. It was the government that put your brother in jail. I didn't lock him up. Right. And so it makes people upset with the government and generally people don't escalate against the government or whatever. Right. So there is that aspect. Now, in a free society, you get the same thing. The other thing, if you take vengeance, what if you make a mistake? What if you make a mistake? What if you what if the guy's got a twin? Right. What if you're in some Jeremy Irons in the mirror situation? What if the guy's got a twin and you go and you shoot this guy and you shot the wrong guy? Right. Oh, so, or what if, what if you two. thought it was this guy, but it turned out to be some other guy or maybe you were set up and the clues all led to some guy. Right. Like there's that movie um, where the guys uh, I wouldn't tell you this is backwards time movie. I can't remember what it's called, but but maybe someone someone wants you to go kill some guy. So they 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 killed your family and then they left his wallet there. Right, so well, it doesn't, so th- it doesn't
5: it, have to always be the extreme of my family has been wiped out and whatever. And, no, but, and, but and that doesn't matter. It doesn't
0: matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What I'm pointing out is that if you take "quote justice" or the law into your own hands, you don't have the investigative capacities that a free market justice system would have, or even the government for that matter, unless you're in. Detroit or Chicago or any other places where crimes—I uh, don't think they're still working on who killed the pharaohs there because they're a little slow on the uh, getting things solved. So if you decide to take revenge into your own hands rather than going through some more formal process where people are skilled at investigating, I have an odd fondness for Michael Connolly novels, uh, and uh, I, just, I find police procedurals quite interesting because the degree of work that at least in this. I'm sure, somewhat idealized universe that they have to go through in order to establish um, innocence or potential innocence or guilt, even to get to trial. It's pretty huge. And so I think most people, like if, if someone's done them some wrong, they don't want to take into their own hands because the possibility of mistake and the possibility of escalation are considerable. And so I think for the most part, they'd like to make that phone call and get the experts in who are going to take over the liability for escalation and who are going to take over the liability of getting things wrong. Uh, And I think most people will be very uncomfortable taking that kind of retribution into their own hands because of the significant risks involved.
5: I'm
0: not. You're not like you wouldn't call the cops? No,
5: absolutely not, especially not on something like that. I, what if, I, I what never if, understood Wait, something like wait. Something, hang on. like wait. Something like what? Wait, something like what? I, I'm just saying. Well, before, can I can I say this one question too before, or, Because if I don't, I'm going to forget it. Yeah. Because you were talking about escalation, and it sounded a lot like potential problems with um to others. So you're talking about uh, you know falling down the stairs and somebody else getting hurt, things of that nature, collateral damage. Um, and that was one question I asked in the original of that. It's, now, if if we win, there are going to be a lot—and by that I mean anarchists—there uh, are going to be a lot of people a lot worse off. There's probably going to be a lot of people that will die in the transition to a free society because, I mean, it's, if, if, if they no, don't— it'll no, be the no, no, time, no, no, dude, 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 I'm class.
0: sorry. I'm sorry. Come on. Come on, man. <laughs> a lot of people going to die in the transition to a free society? I don't think that's necessarily the case. <laughs> I mean, well, a, compared to at, what? Look, compared to look, a non-free society? Compared to a slow degradation of no, the economy? No, no. People not having oh, enough yeah, to eat yeah, exactly. because uh, the they can't keep the power grid on?
5: Oh no! no I think no, a lot no, fewer oh,
0: people are going to oh, suffer oh. in a transition to a free society.
5: Well, I, for us, for us to get—I'm just—I talk about the United States when I say this, but for us to get from where we are now to there, there are going to be, have to be, a lot of giant social upheavals. And, the le- I mean, look at what why? happened with Catholics and the Protestants. Why? Why? And, and, why? That, why? and that wasn't even as big of a turning point in ideas as what this would be. I mean, to go from a status to a non-statist society, that's, that's a lot more fundamental than Catholic and Protestant of, I have slightly different ideas of who Jesus' best friend is.
0: Oh man, I, I, I disagree with just about every aspect of your his, historical I'm, I'm analysis. Uh, uh, look, Christian Christian theological battles cost the lives of about a third of Europeans over a couple of hundred year period. So those doctrinal disputes are huge. I genuinely believe that we're not going to get to a free society until we have at least a generation of peaceful parents, peaceful peaceful parenting. By that time, The transition will not be horrible. In fact, it will be hugely beneficial for just about everyone. Um, The other thing, too, is that I've seen, and we've got a whole presentation on this um, on the channel. It's the truth about Canada. You know, Canada slashed a huge amount of welfare and social spending in the 90s. A huge amount. And people just went, okay, I'll get a job. Yeah, it was a fun ride. Well, it lasted, but, you know, if the gambler's out of money and he's broke, he doesn't trash the place. He just goes home. It it, it depends whether or not there's enough moral certainty to, to know why the transition is occurring. If the transition is occurring because you are just out of money and everyone's apologetic and the the, the crybaby trolls can go insane and everyone's going to be like, I get it, I understand, I feel this. Right then, of course, there's going to be a big, giant mess, right? But, um... If there's a genuine understanding, it's like, okay, well, this was a bad system. It really didn't work, and it's destroying the future of our children. And, you know, it was a fun, crazy ride, and now it's over. So, you know, dust off your big girl panties and go get a job and go be responsible. Oh, the single moms have an Okay, well, the single moms can find some way to be great enough uh, people that guys will want to be with them. And um, even with their kids, yeah, people will adapt. You know, job. we we made it through the ice age. You know, we made it through the little warm period and the medieval Ice Age. I mean, we made it through the Black Death. You know, we made it through the collapse of the Roman Empire. You know, I, I think a shrinking in the welfare checks will be okay with.
5: Well, yeah, I'm just saying is that in all those things you also said, though, a lot of people died in that. And the thing is that I'm saying, now, you said in the 90s Canada cut back on welfare. Okay, but... They also just elected Justin Trudeau, and it's not like Canada's—I'm not as well-versed, I'm sure, on Canadian fiscal policy or debt problems or banking as you are. But, but nobody died when
0: Canada cut back welfare. That's my point.
5: Okay, yeah, I get that. But my point is that they're also right back to the welfare key. And, I mean, sure, it's because so they didn't suck the cow dry till it died. I mean, yeah. when—
0: And, and um, so what? That's, that's inevitable. Like I'm yeah. saying that until children are raised in a different way, we're going to uh-huh. keep having these same problems. And children have the, the, the treatment of children is certainly improving in many ways, although it's okay. being undertowed by the fact that government schools are getting worse. But all yeah. you're telling me is, Steph, your theory is true. Parenting has not been revolutionised, and therefore people are still drawn towards statism. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I completely agree with you. Um, and if the government does run out of money, then um, People will be fine. They'll they'll just repudiate the debt, uh, and okay, uh, they'll so be at recess. About- and uh, people will people will be fine if. If people understand that the system hasn't worked and it needs to change, if people are like, oh, the evil, racist, capitalist, white, cisgendered overlords are keeping all the rightful cheddar from the people who need it. And right, if there's the race, this is why I keep fighting against the race baiting and the gender baiting and so on. Like if we all get that we were on this weird ride that just led nowhere and we need to solve it uh, and, and it just can't continue and we're all in it together, then we can solve the problem. But if it turns into a war of all against all for the last fiat dollar on the planet, then, um, yeah. I mean, the fact that that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are topping the left and right polls, uh, everybody knows that the current system doesn't work. The Bernie Sanders supporters want more of the same crazy stuff, and the Donald Trump supporters want some more of the same crazy stuff in terms of foreign policy and some slightly better stuff domestically. But I, I'm just concerned that if you're around there, if you're out there in the world saying, well, you know, I want a free society, prepare to die, millions of sheeple. I'm, I'm a little concerned that you might want to work on your fucking marketing a little bit because I don't oh, really no, think no, that's no. much of a rallying cry.
5: No, my thing is, is that I, I do want to. Death say, I, to the I, underclass!
0: Freedom! It's like, I, I, no, <laughs> can you not say that, please? Because I don't think it's true. Well,.
5: Not, I don't want to sound overtly arrogant when I say this, but I think you've talked about the uh, mouse utopia experiments. I kind of feel like uh, a lot of anarchists, uh, especially uh, anarcho-capitalists, are like the beautiful ones who are just sitting back going, well, oh, y'all are about to die, you know, and just kind of one of those situations of that you can...
0: You might want to hang out with some slightly nicer anarchists. My <laughs> thought: you might want to hang out with some slightly more positive anarchists. Like I'm going to groom myself. You're all going to die. I, you know, that's that's not a long dinner party for me. That's sort of what I, <laughs> what I'm saying. You know, uh, eat up. Next is a course of proletariat side meat with uh, HP sauce. But uh, I, I just want to point out that that you may be drawn a little bit towards some nihilistic doom scenarios, and you know, maybe you're right. I just. I yeah. have looked at transitions quite a bit throughout history, and if there's sufficient knowledge, the transition is pretty easy. And if there's not sufficient knowledge, if people feel that they're being ripped off and that they're entitled to stuff and they don't understand why the system isn't working, then they tend to get more aggressive, right? Uh-huh. Um, like if if <laughs> if I know my car is a rental, I don't phone up the cops because the Hertz guy takes it back, you know, because yeah. I know the deal. It's a rental. It's got to go back to Hertz. Right, As opposed to, hey man, I just parked my car and this guy in a yellow jacket just stole it from me. I just left it unattended for a moment and even put my luggage out. I don't know, give me what's better mileage. Guys, you gotta come. Where are you, Hertz? Did you have a contract with Hertz? Sir, he's taking back the car that's his. Oh, okay, I'm not upset anymore, right? (laughs) No vengeance, right? So if people know the deal, then they'll not mind the transition. And If they don't know the deal, they'll fight it tooth and nail. But I'm concerned that by you saying... Death to millions, um, it, 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 it might not be that helpful to the oh, cause
5: Don't think by any stretch of the imagination, I'm saying I want this to happen or I'm, you know. I
0: don't, I know you don't want home, it. I know, know you no, don't want but, it. But if yeah. you want, if you want a transition to a free society and you believe it's death to the millions, then you kind of do need it in order to get mm-hmm. to your utopia. And I don't think it's necessary at all. I think that the alternative will be death to millions, right? Like wars and famines oh, yeah. and every known thing in the universe but uh if you're going to say death to millions man you really really got to be on solid ground and you've really got to have studied this stuff because otherwise you're kind of letting a whole bunch of nihilistic crazy spill out i think to the detriment of trying to bring about a free society
5: oh yeah 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 well it's i guess it's just one of those things of that i've gotten to the point where i kind of Talk with just nothing but anarchists.
0: Anymore. No, all, and the whole life. You, man, what you've got to do is stop arguing on social media, because if there's anything that's going to provoke a desire for death to millions, it's trying to have arguments on social media, particularly around ethics. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I get that. You know, um, uh, you know, and then it becomes like uh, I say, we go up to the spaceship and nuke it for argument, it, man. It's game <laughs> over, right? You like Bill Patton in in, in Aliens. Um, you got to stay away from situations where reason is impotent, stay away from crazy people who deny reality, because then you'd be like, huh, world ending plague of social dislocation and destruction. Will it take down the people I'm arguing with on social media? Okay, I have <laughs> well, some sympathy. Like, just got to stay because they'll tempt you into a kind of nihilism and a kind of hatred of, of humanity. And that's kind of their job. Right. I mean, if you argue like if you dance with zombies, you're going to end up with rotting crap all over you and a very bad smell in your nose. Right. Just stay away from them and, uh, you know, go with Pia in her prime. I don't know. Just making something up. But yeah. just try and stay away from situations where you, you can't gain traction with rationality. And if you're arguing with stuff on social media, oh, man, I mean, <laughs> it's going to be something that's just going to provoke a whole lot of bad sentiment coming out of your spleen.
5: Yeah, well, this, you know, and then the whole Won't time, time I've ever been on. Take me to episode.
0: Zombie Town. Won't you take me yeah. to Zombie Town? <laughs> anyway, so. Well, going. now, when it comes to peaceful
5: parenting, I'm fully and 100% on board with you from the uh, ethical standpoint of it and in what I feel of that it would be the uh, salt sowed in the earth that would keep a state from ever arising again. But every single time, and that is when you look on social media or just at the world in general, whenever I hear about. Peaceful parenting, or ideas with the libertarian, the more traditional libertarian, through education and that, I kind of almost feel like we're panda bears trying to outbreed rats in a city dump. You know, it's just kind of one of those things. I'm sitting around looking, and going, "Worst buddy movie
0: ever," but yeah, go on.
5: (laughs) And uh, because the whole thing I look at too is is that you know, a lot of liberals and American liberals, not uh, European liberals are very much into uh, not spanking, peaceful, reasonable negotiation, but they're raising their kids to be socialists. So when I hear that, I'm thinking, basically, you're talk- it's talking about raising anarchists. And like I'm saying, and I'll just use the analogy again, it's like trying to outbreed another species with panda bears.
0: Right, and- but you see, you don't talk to the parents, right? When the kids grow up and become adults, and they say, well, we need a central authority, we need coercion, and then you say, well... How did your parents deal with disagreements with you? Oh, they sat down and reasoned with me. Okay, well, if we can do that with a five-year-old, can we not do that with a 25-year-old in society? Right? You, you talk to them and say, well, was, was was violence the solution in your home? No. Now, if violence was the solution in their home, then their, their desire to get rid of the state is going to be proportionately less because then you're saying violence is really bad, which they will then consciously hear as your parents were really violent, therefore really bad. But, but uh, uh, if, if kids are being raised itself. without coercion, so much the better. Then we say, okay, well, coercion is not res- necessary for raising children. We can assume that children are more irrational than the average adult. Therefore, we don't need aggression uh, in the organizing of society. It's not, you know, it's not exactly a, a slam dunk, but it's certainly something that's mm-hmm. going to give them a lot more pause than if they were raised violently.
5: Well, just the thing is now, what I can say is one of the things that brought me to uh, the anarchist camp, aside from just the logical argument, is is that um, the aggressions that there was in my household growing up, because there was a lot of that in my mind, well, yeah, that wasn't any good, and okay, yeah, I kind of see where the problems were. So right. you know, that was one thing that really attracted me to it.
0: So. right. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, we've, we've done a fair sprint around the mulberry bush. Um, I, I think that vengeance is a very risky thing to get into for the escalation and potential for mistake. I think that most times, of course, we will try to prevent in a future society, prevent the kind of child's abuse that results in criminality. Uh, so I, I don't think it's going to be a big problem in the future where these things do occur. I think people will defer to professionals who will take over the liability for the um, examination and investigation and prosecution of a, a crime. Say what I'm
5: doing is wrong.
0: I don't know what you're doing. What are you doing? Oh, you mean That's like wanting I'm to get back at your former boss?
5: I, yeah, wanting to just completely and utterly financially destroy him.
0: Well, I, if you're telling the truth, I mean, I, I personally think that, that vengeance is a pretty crappy way to spend your life. I think it, mm-hmm. it kind of drains a lot of joy out of your life. You know, people will act badly against it, you in, in the hope of infecting you with hatred, right? And like, oh, you're you wake up and I hate those guys. I hate those people and so on. And I don't know. I uh, I, I, think that's kind of letting them win in your head, right? Either they take action or don't. If you're not going to take action, just put them out of your mind. Because, I mean, this guy, let's say he's just some really bad guy, whoever he is. Okay, and let him go be his bad guy. Eventually, life will punish him no matter what, right? I mean, but the
5: thing is, I take enjoyment from it, though. And maybe it's just I'm a dark person, but like I say, whenever it comes to you know, uh whenever I see somebody who's just truly I don't want to use evil because that's 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 a very, very strong word. But whenever I see somebody who is like that, and now I can use an example in my life from the past of somebody who I thought was evil and that, um and no, I I really enjoy it. It's uh
0: I enjoy seeing Yeah, look, evil I mean if case. if you if you want to, but but be careful which, which dog you're feeding, right? Like every every one of our personality attributes is a dog, and the dogs that win are the dogs we feed the most. And if you feed the dog of hatred and vengeance and the desire to grind evil people's face into the dust and so on, okay, that's the dog that's going to win. And that's going to be how your life grows to be defined, that you're some grim you Gotham-based superhero life. who never smiles because there's another evil person in the world to somehow vanquish and conquer. And I, uh, I get that there is a satisfaction in seeing bad people bite the dust, for sure. We all like it when the villain uh, takes the final shot to the head. Uh, I get that. But, you know, my concern would be the degree to which it is not going to end up with you living a life that is going to be inspiring to others because you are, you know, um, the lone ranger on the dark trail of every piece of gunpowdered soul that is spilling its explosive residue across the landscape and uh, the degree to which you're just going to be consumed into somebody who's um, uh, a weapon of justice being wielded no matter what, there is a cost to that. The degree to which, you know, there is, be careful that the monsters you hunt, be careful the monsters that you hunt that you do not become a monster yourself. That is uh, very important. You can read some Nietzsche on this because he, he knew oh, I've, I've read about a lot of some of this. Oh. Right. So the concern, the degree to which vengeance might be taking away from happiness in your life, this guy's a bad guy. Yeah, you know, you're, you're never going to run out of bad guys in the modern world to go chasing after. I just think that it might end up being kind of exhausting and debilitating towards your future happiness, and it might strip you of some capacity for love and joy and devotion uh, to to better things in life. So, listen, I got to move on to the end of the show. But uh, thanks very much for your call. Always fascinating to chat with yowl is a joyful and blissful experience uh, every single week we do two of these shows a week and uh, it's a real pleasure and um, as you do your shopping for this uh, christmas vacation you can go to fdrurl.com slash amazon to buy using our affiliate link Uh, it doesn't cost you a penny and we get a few bits of birdseed falling through the cage Uh, you can of course go to freedomandradiocom slash donate to help us out with the show absolutely essential for us to continue to do what we're doing in the world we're going gangbusters I want to get even more octane in the jetpack so we can get right high above the world to check out whether there's a giant ring of ice around the flat table. So, have yourselves a wonderful week, everyone. Thanks again for your support and your interest. And please like and subscribe and share, as always. We'll talk to you soon.